the best place to buy tires? Where's the best repair shop for my hybrid? Questions about your car? Drive into Dobbs. With more than 40 locations, our team of technicians will get the job done right the first time. For deals you can use, click on gotodobbs.com now. For over two decades, E&B Granite has been St. Louis's trusted name for kitchen, bathroom, and outdoor space renovations that are guaranteed to bring new life into your living spaces. Their skilled team will provide you with personalized customer service, fast turnaround times, and prices you won't find with big box stores. Support local and schedule free consultation at enbgranite.com or call them at 314-645-9300 or better yet, stop by the showroom and explore their massive inventory. Again, that's enbgranite.com. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on GoToDobbs.com today. There they go, and the 3-2 hit high in the air, deep left field, and it is going to leave the ballpark. Over the train tracks and into the night. He made one mistake too many. Hung a breaking ball right over the middle of the plate, and Jorge Soler destroyed it. A swing and a bouncer to short. Swanson has it. The throw across to Freeman, and that'll do it. The Atlanta Braves defeat the Houston Astros 7-0, and they win the World Series in six games. What a run. It was a magical night last night if you're an Atlanta Braves fan. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. The Braves, the second team in the wildcard era to defeat three straight teams that won at least 95 games in the regular season. Joining the 2011 Cardinals in doing so. Alex, I think the Braves, if you're a fan of baseball or the type of story that you wanted to see happen, because the Braves were not a great team for much of this season. In fact, I mentioned this with Danny Mack earlier today. They were a bad team for a lot of the regular season. I, I read 0.3% chance of winning the World Series back in July. Yeah, and they didn't go above 500 until August 6th. I mean, it took five months for them to finally find their footing and it didn't happen until post trade deadline and if you're a baseball fan and for me the the thing that I'm taking from them winning the World Series this year don't punt on the season don't if you feel like you have any shot of being able to make the postseason go make those moves like the Braves did you don't have to sell off the farm to be able to get major leaguers on your roster they didn't trade a whole lot for Jorge Soler or Eddie Rosario or Adam Duvall. They were able to get Jock Peterson. They were able to get these guys for uh, pennies on the dollar. When you can do that at the trade deadline, it that should be the lesson for me that other teams learn. Let's go out there and keep adding. If we have any chance, any chance whatsoever, even if it's 0.6%, There's always a chance for you to be able to do something special, especially when you play in a division like the Braves did this year. And when you got a supporting cast around those players, we're like Freddie Freeman. And I mean, honestly, Austin Riley was really impressive in this run. Ozzie Albee, Stanzi Sponson. And then on top of it, the pitching staff that the Braves have had. When you have a core in place that you sit there and say, yeah, we lost our best player. 
but we still have the pieces to make a run and to sit here and say we still can be one of the better teams in this division, then you you have to add to that. You can't punt on that. And hopefully other teams look at it that way. Hopefully this, I don't think it will, but it redirects teams from trying to tank all the time and going after those first and second draft picks. I know they're important, but when you're in the Atlanta Braves, Braves team and you can go out there and find four pieces to just complement your roster and make a run, there's no reason that anybody should be doing something like that and punting at the trade deadline. Yeah, give them all the credit in the world for being willing to go out there and make those moves that you talk about. I mean, we I remember we were talking about when they acquired Jack Peterson. We said, ah, it's probably one of those. They'll just see how it goes, and if they're still struggling, they'll just trade him away again. They'll just flip him and get something else in return. And instead, what did they do? They were still below 500. They go out and add three more outfielders to the mix. And then they go on this run. So this is a great story for the Atlanta Braves. And like you said, BK, never give up on a season because I'm 0.3 or 0.4% of making it to the playoffs. I mean, that's kind of what the Cardinals were, too. And the Cardinals, they didn't, they kind of did a little bit similar of what the Braves did, where they added two veteran stars that we looked at and said, okay, we get it, but that's not going to help them. So props. I mean, that that is clearly what the number one lesson to learn is coming out of this postseason is find depth and you can do it anywhere. Yeah, fortify your roster, right? And when you're looking at the Cardinals, you you mentioned Alex, you got to you got to have that core there first. This goes back to the conversation we had yesterday with the Rams, where it's like, yeah, it's it's a great in theory to trade for all these superstars, but if you don't already have your core in place, you can't follow what they're doing. The Braves did that as well at the deadline, and I think that's something that I hope the Cardinals are willing to do moving forward. And I mentioned that the Braves are a great baseball story. Who better to tell it than Tim Kirkshin of ESPN? This is a great, great story that the Braves wrote this year. They were under 500 for 126 days this year. They lost Ronald Acuna Jr. on July the 10th. They didn't get over 500 until August the 6th. And then they beat a 95-win team, a 105-win team, and then a 95-win team. They out-homer the Astros 11-2 here in the World Series and won it for the first time since 1995. Sorry, Scott. This is why baseball is the best game ever. That the only team that made the playoffs without winning 90 games ends up winning the World Series. That simply can't happen in the other sports. And that's why baseball is so beautiful. It did. An 18-19 season. So the funny thing is, like, he got carried away there a little bit. We can reel it in just a little bit. Easy, Kirk. I I love it because... Man, it's okay to get caught up in the nostalgia. It's okay to get caught up in the romanticism of baseball every once in a while. And this series gave you a whole lot of that. You had to feel good last night for Freddie Freeman, who's been with this organization since he was 19 years old, and he's finally able to taste the sweetest moment of his career. You had to feel good for Brian Snitker, who's been in the Braves organization for like almost 50 years And he's finally able to get to the mountaintop with that team. And you got to feel good, although he wasn't able to celebrate with his team because apparently he tested positive for COVID. But Alex and timing (laughs) Justin Turner's style. He had a he had a great trade deadline. He decided to go down to Atlanta after having so much success with the Blue Jays. And he deserved that as well. So there were. So many people that I felt great for last night. Ozzy Albies as well. Great moment for him, who's one of the, the shining stars, young stars in this game right now. Can we talk about the real MVP from that team, though? Which one? It's Ron Washington. Of course. Like Ron you Washington. Feel good for him, too. Like, come on. My man gets beat in the, in the World Series as a player, twice as a manager. 
And he finally gets it. Did you see his uh, post-game yeah. interview talking about ass and, uh, and elbows? Uh, I love Ron Washington. Apparently, he, he told his team prior to the World Series that they're going to be laughing at everybody else when they're walking off with their ass and elbows towards the cameras because they're celebrating together. It was great. Just great. I, I, I loved that. And it, it's so funny because I don't know if there are a ton of people that loved this Braves team prior to the postseason, other than, of course, Braves fans. But when they're going up against the Astros, it was so easy. I was with a group of people last night and they didn't. A lot of them don't care about baseball, but they were thrilled to see the Braves win just because they didn't want to see the Astros win. They were rooting against the Astros as much as they were rooting for the Braves. That's what I'm talking about. I was so torn, though, because I I did not want to see the Houston Astros win. But like you got to feel bad for Dusty Baker. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah. Like he has been so close and then he still just can't get it. Like the poor man is just gnawing on he, that toothpick like a beaver last night and he just still can't get it. I don't know if you guys saw in the I think it was the bottom of the ninth. They showed a shot of Dusty and it it looked like he was about to cry I because don't blame he was him. he was that close like you said and he just cannot get over that hump. Did you see his his post-game presser though? Like it was great. Uh, like that's that's All why class. that's why they brought Dusty Baker to Houston because he is just about as classy as an individual as you'll ever see. And this is kind of the end of an era for Houston as well, because last night probably marked the last game that we're going to see Carlos Correa in an Astros uniform. And I don't know what comes next for Houston. They're still going to be a really good team. They've got a ton of talent on that roster, but their pitching is in need of a massive overhaul in the offseason. And losing Carlos Correa from that lineup is definitely going to result in some changes that need to take place. I also don't know whether or not Dusty Baker is going to be back next year. Their owner said after the game that he would like to get something done. But if I'm not mistaken, his contract's up at the end of this year. So we'll see what happens there as well. And speaking of the Astros, if we're going to talk about the positives from the Braves, I would like to bring up something that I read for Michael Bauman of the Ringer earlier today. I think this applies to the Astros, but it also in some ways applies to the Cardinals as well. He wrote, the playoffs are unpredictable, so why leave anything to chance that you absolutely do not have to? Legitimate title shots don't come around that often. Just ask the Braves. And the Astros just lost one because they needed one more good starting pitcher and a left-handed bat off of the bench. That's the thing that the Cardinals needed this year as well. They needed another starter and they really could have used another left-handed bat off of the bench. So going into next season and certainly next year at the trade deadline, somebody on the text line said, do you guys really see Mo being aggressive at the deadline? He needs to, Um, he needs to prevent what happened to the Astros from happening to the Cardinals next year. Next year is a no excuses type of a season for this team as it should have been this year for the Astros. If you're a copycat league, which most leagues usually are, when one team wins, everyone wants to do what that team just accomplished. If you're John Mozalock, you're sitting there looking, okay, well, why did the Atlanta Braves win? Mm-hmm. Because they were aggressive and they went out there and they traded pieces. Yeah, they weren't big time prospects, but they traded assets so that they could go out there and get proven commodities in Jorge Soler, Eddie Rosario, Adam Duvall, and Jock Peterson. So if you're a copycat league and you sit on your hands this offseason and say, "Ah, we're going to stick with the prospects, well, then shame on you because you had your chance. You just saw what it takes when you're aggressive. And it's not like Mo hasn't done it before. He did it in 2011. I mean, if he doesn't make those moves in 11 to bolster that bullpen and get another starter in Edwin Jackson – I mean, you're not talking about a World Series team in 2011. So he's done it before. So that's why I'm with you, BK. There are no excuses heading into next season. This team has to perform at the level we expect coming from 
opening day up until the deadline, and then you got to go find the pieces that make this a World Series contender next season. And Alex mentioned it's a copycat league, so what are the lessons to be learned here from this postseason? Not just from the Braves, but from all of the teams that advanced further than the Cardinals did. It's the lesson that Tanner has been teaching us, Alex, from day one here on this very show. Bunt every chance you can get. Slug, baby, slug. slug. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's the third lesson? Let pitchers hit the third. Yes. No seven inning double headers. DH position shouldn't uh, play the whole game. You should Absolutely. be pulled after Let the pitcher's pitchers gone. Hit. All of those are lessons that Tanner has taught T-Bone, us. But you the, have terrible lessons. At the top of the really? list, pretty good. Slug baby slug. Yeah. The Braves' final twelve runs in the World Series came via the ho- the home run. They out homered the Astros eleven to two in the World Series. That was tied for the largest uh, home run differential between two World Series teams in baseball history. Tied with the 1956 Yankees. The Braves went in there and they won because they were hitting the long ball more often than their opponent. And that's what happened all postseason long. 25 and 2. That's what the record was for teams who out homered their opponents. What do the Cardinals need to do this offseason? Find guys you can mash because that's what playoff baseball is, for better or worse. And I think a lot of times it makes the product a little worse, but. You tell me the rules, I'll play the game. These are the rules of the postseason right now. You got to find a way to hit the ball over the wall. And the Cardinals got to find those guys this offseason. Chicks and T-Bone dig the long ball. So that's what the Cardinals need to do. <laughs> really to uncomfortable. Your, you winked at me. They called him the chick he, he winked yeah. at me when he said that and like lip, licked his lips. The, it's weird, man. The Braves, their runs in the World Series, 72% of them were via the home run. That's fourth highest in all time in Major League Baseball history. What's surprisingly is below the 56 Yankees and 63 Yankees. That's stunning. But that is what the Cardinals need to do. They got four guys that can do it in Goldie, uh, Arnado, O'Neill. Oh, wait, maybe they only got three. fourth one? Sorry, they only <laughs> had three. They need a fourth. That's what I was going to say. They need a fourth, and they need someone that has pop coming off the bench, not like their bench this year. Yeah, well, that fourth one is the shortstop position, plain and simple. And the one coming off of the bench, you got a couple of options in Juan Yepes and Nolan Gorman. So the Cardinals are sitting pretty if they would just be aggressive this offseason and try and find that big bat. The other thing that I loved about that game last night, guys, Max Free just went out there and pitched. You know, and they didn't have the, oh, well, second time through the order, we're going to yank him. They let him go. They got him six innings there. And I know we've seen the narrative this season of short leashes on pitchers and abusing the bullpen. But frankly, I loved watching what Max Fried did last night. It gave me a little bit of a feel of old school baseball. They did have a short leash on him, though. Six innings? Through 74 pitches. That's a very short leash for a guy that I, gave up four yeah, hits but, over six but innings. But the strategy was set up at that point where you get your seventh, eighth, and ninth oh, inning I'm guys. Not, I'm not disagreeing with you, but old school baseball was you you keep that guy in. You keep him in until he starts falling apart, and they, they didn't do that. So I... I would actually disagree with that sentiment just a little bit. I thought last night they did go a new school ball. Well, you're a jerk. <laughs> I mean, he threw 74 pitches despite giving up zero earned runs. And they had it. This was different than the other one where they had the, the no hitter. What was that? Friday night in game four. And they took him out because they had a one nothing lead. You were up by a lot by the time they decided to take Freed out. Now, he was gassed. It it became pretty clear afterwards when he was talking with the media. He said, I had nothing left in me. I was exhausted at the end of that one. So it was the right decision, clearly. 
but even up until the very end, uh, we did see a lot of new school baseball in this postseason, to say the least. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, the first college football playoff rankings were released last night. And Alex, we got a very angry text from Tanner oh, Hendrickson last night. Don't hold me back when we get to this. We'll let him cook coming up at 1130. But coming up next, what are the biggest questions that remain right now for the Blues? I was asking this of Alex yesterday. I don't have a lot, but we'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. They are St. Louis. It's BK and Ferrario, live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. I think they're as deep as I've seen them before. I mean, they can throw four lines at you, and when you're talking about the players that are picking it up and you're not listing Tarasenko in the first uh, first breath, you know that they're deep, and I believe that uh, they're going to be they're going to be a team with a chip on their shoulder all year and they're going to be tough to contend with that was bruce boudreau former nhl coach who joined us last week here on 101 espn with alex ferrario and tanner hendrickson i'm brandon kiley so what are the questions that you can ask about a team that's currently first in goals per game that's fourth in goals allowed per game that's top three in both uh the penalty kill and the power play so far that's what i would like to ask alex ferrario who will be on blues pre and post game coverage for blues versus kings starting tonight at eight o'clock Alex, what the heck is your biggest question about this Blues team right now? Because they seem to be top five in every statistical category thus far. I guess the biggest question is going to be what happens when this kind of falls off the track? Can they put it back on the track or does this go into a a big-time rabbit hole that you're not able to find yourself out of? And that goes to show you where this Blues team is at. They don't have blaring questions. The offense, was, which was a question last year, right where the secondary goal is going to come from, well, that... That reared its ugly head pretty early on in the season. Uh, defensively, I know, T-Bone, you hate the fact that this defense still is the way that it is. You think it's terrible, although, like BK said, fourth and goals allowed. The defense is playing really well this season so far. Goaltending has been very solid. The backup has been a question mark in the past. So far, we saw Ville Huso. Now that he's in COVID, we'll have to wait and see how long he's out for. But that's looked good. So, That's the thing about this Blues team. There really aren't that many questions. I think if you're going to ask one question, it's how do they overcome absences, whether it's injuries, COVID, where they get into a little bit of a rut. But we've seen it so far. They lose O'Reilly and Saad. Well, they lose a game by a goal, but then they win the next game. So I don't really know if there's any blaring questions for this team or glaring questions for this team like last season. Mine is still the defense. I, I don't know if – is this really what the Blues defense is or is this just kind of them all playing well at the same time? I, I think the Blues defense is the biggest question mark for me still, and I still believe they need a top-four defenseman. I, I think they are built right now defensively as a regular season team, but when it gets to the playoffs where the battles get harder and you're going more physical towards the uh, at the boards and getting guys away from your net – I don't know if this defensive core is there yet. I think they need one more body because I think defensively that is their biggest weakness, and that's the thing I'm looking for in the next coming weeks to see how they perform. I think that's a fair critique, and I I also – so I went through some of the numbers this morning to, to find out, okay, well, if there was a, a devil's advocate case, what would that be? Because when I watch them right now, I see a team that looks like a top-five team in the NHL. 
Like it's it's hard for me to discern what exactly are the issues for this team, big picture wise, right? As we're kind of looking towards not just how do you make the playoffs, but also uh, what's it look like once you get in. They've got a great goalie who's playing at the peak of his powers right now. Uh, in terms of your forward lines, you are as deep as any Blues team I can remember, and we've heard that from people that have covered the team for 20 years now that have said the exact same thing. Uh, defensively, they're at least playing above what I expected out of them. Here's what I found, Alex, and I was a little surprised by this. I got to be honest. Did you know the Blues have actually been outshot thus far on the season? Their opponents have had more scoring opportunities than the Blues have. Uh, If you're looking at the high danger chances that I bring up a lot, the Blues have actually been outshot in terms of the high danger chances as well. They have 63 on the year. Their opponents have 79 so far this season. Again, more of the advanced numbers. If you're looking up the expected goals, and I know that you love the expected stats, Alex. It's a team stat. If you look up the expected goals for and against, uh, the Blues should be, based on those, basically a 500 team right now. They should be basically even. But they've scored five more goals than expected, and they've allowed three fewer goals than expected. Some of that is them just being great. And they have really good shooters who take advantage of their opportunities. And they have a really good goalie who stifles the opposition even when they do get good chances. So some of that is actually a credit in favor of the Blues. It also, though, seems to suggest that the way that they've been playing thus far is not quite as sustainable as we would like it to be. And maybe against the better opponents as they get into the heat, or the, the heart of their schedule, maybe some of this starts to regress and you do see them losing more of these close games. How much of that does that concern you, Alex? I mean, it's concerning, but look, when you look at the the being outshot, you got to go back to some of the, the, the individual situations. Like they were outshot in the second period against the Colorado Avalanche. I think it was like 13 to four. Anybody's going to get outshot against Colorado in the second period because you have that advantage of the benches where the offense is closer to the goal. That's where that team usually um, takes advantage of the opposition. You've had a couple of garbage situations where the Blues were up, what was it, 6-1 to one against the Coyotes, 4-1 to one against the Vegas Golden Knights, or 5-1 to one, I think it was. You've had scenarios where the Blues just basically, to what Craig Berube said, played to the score. And that's where things just turned into garbage time, where it's just trying to get to the end of the game because you're up by five, and the next thing you know, teams are just throwing it at you nonstop. That's where that comes into play. The expected goals for against, I, I that's a little surprising to me just because Same. of the scenario that, that, that has taken place. And anytime you're getting those close scoring chances, it's going to go against you. But look... I I view the game, there's individual games that I go to and I look at. I look at the Vegas Golden Knights game, the game that was close and they shut it down. I look at the most recent one against the Chicago Blackhawks where they were probably outplayed, but they still found a way to win those hockey games. And then you look at the first and second periods of the Colorado Avalanche and the Coyotes game where the Blues just dominated when they were at full strength. Those are all different scenarios that the Blues have had to be in types of games, whether it's their goaltender stealing it, the defense shutting it down, or the offense running away with it. And the way I'm viewing it, even with these numbers, is they've won in all scenarios. And that is a positive for me more than anything. And to the point that Tebow made for the defense, I'm not concerned about it right now. Because, yeah, you might be smaller on your side of the puck. And you might want to see some big physical guys, some mongoons out there who can shut the play down. But look, when you have a five-man unit on the ice that is very strong defensively where you're playing into consideration the forwards who are back-checking just as hard as the defensemen are, and for how they move the puck as a five-man unit rather than three guys going forward and two guys staying back, 
I'm not concerned about the defense because I think they can play to this style better than what other teams can. And we did get a text that is is an important clarification from the 630 and our air comfort service X line at 65780. I should have clarified this was uh, on at, in even strength opportunities. So this was not including the power play penalty kill. This doesn't take into account right. when they're uh, a man down because, of course, that's going to skew some of the numbers. This is just when they're at even strength. They've been outshot on the season. They have fewer high danger chances and the expected goals for and against are basically even. I think I'm with you. I'm not worried about this stuff. A lot of it I do think comes down to uh, in games that they've been up by a lot. There's garbage time, garbage time, right? I remember when Blake Bortles was a quarterback in the NFL. He used to be a great fantasy quarterback, awful quarterback, but great in fantasy because every week it would come to the fourth quarter. His team would be down by four touchdowns and boom, he starts throwing, 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 racking up the yards. He gets a couple of garbage time touchdowns and boom, you racking up the points. That's happened a couple of times already in this season for the Blues. So I'm not super concerned about it. I do think it's something worth monitoring, though. Uh, moving forward, if this ends up being a trend that sustains itself and you get into the games against Winnipeg and Carolina and Edmonton, that's when you could start seeing some of these trends becoming a little bit more concerning because against the quality opponents on your schedule, yeah, you're you're going to want to get more chances than mm-hmm. them. You're going to want to be able to sustain the the offensive zone time. And I feel like and this is just based on the naked eye. It's not incorporating the numbers that I just mentioned. I feel like the Blues have actually done a pretty good job this year of controlling the puck more often than not. But my eyes must be deceiving me because the numbers don't indicate that that, that has been the case. There's so far. one game that they've been outplayed this season. And out of seven where you've been outplayed in one and for how many games they've been missing individuals, I think that's an important thing to take away. And the one that I think I would say you need to pay close attention to is that they've allowed three or more goals in what is it, four of their six games so far that they've played? Yeah. That's the one I think I would keep an eye on because it goes to Jordan Bennington a little bit there. But look, he picked up the shutout against the Blackhawks. And a save percentage, top three in the league right now. The one that I really like, though, is the fact that their opponents have had 79 high-danger scoring chances, but they've allowed the fourth most fewest goal, or the fourth fewest goals in the National Hockey League so far this season. Yeah. They're getting high-danger scoring chances, but I think the defense is doing a little bit of, hey, we'll let you if you're going to beat me off of the rush, we'll let you take that initial shot, but you're not going to get us on that big-time play across the crease. I would like to not have those in the future, though. Understandably yeah. so. We can limit those moving but forward. That would be great. But, and the other thing that I, has me worried about these high-danger scoring opportunities is a couple of these games have been against teams, and they're not at full strength. Like that first game against Colorado, they were missing – uh, pretty much their big three, right? Landeskog was out. And McKinnon. Uh, McKinnon yeah, was Rainson out. And, yeah. and then Vegas was without some of their top guys in Stone and Pacioretty. And I think Colorado was still somewhat shorthanded when you lost yeah, to them they last didn't have time. Yeah, so I look at those and I say, okay, well, I understand your argument of some of this is coming in garbage time. But the other part of it to me is, okay, a lot of these teams are getting these high-danger scoring chances. They're shorthanded what happens when they're at full strength. And like in my scenario where I'm thinking – is what if Colorado's full strength, high danger scoring opportunities, then it becomes more dangerous in my opinion because you're getting more of those opportunities to a McKinnon, a Landeskog, and then I have to rely more on Jordan Bennington. Look, I think Bennington's great, but can he continue to do that all season long? I don't think so. But look at those games that they were the, the, the opponents were shorthanded against. I mean, they ran away with the games. It's not like it was a one-goal loss and you're sitting here going, oh, man, they barely won that game. I mean, you were playing against a shorthanded Colorado Avalanche team in game one, and you beat them by three goals. And frankly, that was so close because Colorado had pulled the goaltender like multiple times when the it was a two-man advantage off of a power play. 
you beat the Vegas Golden Knights in a close game, but Robin Leonard was incredible in that one. So, yeah, I mean, it is something to look at and say, hey, you, you haven't beaten these teams at full strength yet. But you play to your schedule. And if this is the schedule that the Blues have been handed, yeah. you go out there and you win these games, but you 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 single-handedly win these games. It's not like, oh, you got puck luck to win these games. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. The Blues are really good. And this is just searching for what are the things that are, could potentially be concerning moving forward. The answer is not a whole lot. I mean, they've been doing this also. We mentioned the other teams not being with or being without some of their top players. The Blues have also been without Brandon Saad, Buchnevich for a couple of games. Ryan They're without Ryan O'Reilly for the last couple and continuing for probably at least the next couple. So it, it's not just like the other teams are, are dealing with things. The Blues have as well. And oh, by the way, Sonny still hasn't played so far this year. Right. So uh, th- they're in a really good spot. And I'm not s- trying to suggest that the sky is falling or anything. I just keep an eye on it. And to your point on the high danger chances, Alex, that's something that Bennington's been good at for most of his career. Mm -hmm. The problem for him has never been coming up with the big save. The problem for him has been letting up the easy one. Mm -hmm. And thus far this season, he's been pretty good on both. And if he can continue that, uh, that has to make you feel really good about where the Blues are at moving forward. Blues back in action tonight against the Kings. Pre-game coverage for the late start, 8 o'clock with Alex Ferrario. We'll have the puck drop for you right here on your Home for the Blues 101 ESPN at 9. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Questions and answers in about 15 minutes. But next, Tanner has never been as angry as he Calm was down, last man. night. We got a commercial break. We'll talk about the college football rankings next on 101 ESPN. Giving you the picture. The real big St. Louis sports picture. It's BK and Ferrario. Live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. I was surprised that Cincinnati was so low. They've got a top 10 win at their place. So when I start looking at the other teams in the top, I mean, I, I can argue with Michigan State. They got they beat seven. I can argue with Oregon. They beat five. But when I look at Ohio State, there's not an impressive win over what Cincinnati has done. And if you look at the rest of the schedule, it's not really that impressive. So they just clearly said right away, like, we're going to take this off the table right now. Like, if not now, when? It's not going to get any better. That was David Pollock last night on ESPN after it was revealed that Cincinnati comes in at number six. Number six, not even in the top five in the initial college football playoff they? rankings. Thank With Alex you. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Sarcasm. Oh, you sucked, just like the committee. <laughs> we always do this where the rankings that don't actually matter, we get up in arms about early on. So let's say that as an early caveat. These rankings do not matter. They don't matter for another four or five weeks. However, they do give us a glimpse into what the committee is thinking right now. And specifically with Cincinnati, they actually might matter. Because Cincinnati, as you just heard there from David Pollock, this is the best their resume will look all year. It does not get better from here. They can only have games that end up hurting them, not really helping them, because their big game this year, there was only one of them. It was at Notre Dame, and they won that one against a top-10 opponent on the road. Tanner, I'm going to let you cook on this one because I don't have a huge issue with what the committee did last night. I actually don't. I didn't either. But I know you do, so I'm going to allow you to present the case as to why these are trash rankings that never should have come out the way that they did last night. Guys, Cincinnati is a top-four team. Now, I understand Michigan State, Alabama, Georgia ahead of them. I've watched Oregon. Oregon is not a top-four team. I've watched Ohio State. They lost to Oregon. So I understand Ohio State being behind Oregon, but Cincinnati is a top-four team. They won on the road, as you mentioned, at number 10, Notre Dame. And their ranking now, I'm with you. The rankings do not matter right now, but 
that ranking right there just basically gave Cincinnati the middle finger and said, see that top four? Yeah, you won't be touching that this That's year. That's true. You're not in the college football playoff because you need so much help ahead of you. And not only ahead of you, you need so much help behind you. Oklahoma's undefeated and behind them. Wake Forest is undefeated behind them. Those teams win their conference. They will leapfrog Cincinnati. My biggest issue is with watching these teams – I understand they want to look at the schedule and say, ah, they're only wins against number 10 Notre Dame. Okay, Oregon beat Ohio State on the road. But I do not think both those teams are better than Cincinnati. I've watched those teams. On paper, I think Cincinnati is better than Oregon and Ohio State. Watching Cincinnati, they are a college football playoff team. And as as, uh, Pollock said in that cut, he said, you know, if if not now, then when? Never. I mean, with this ra- this ranking right here, they are not putting Cincinnati in. They're not going to put a non-Power 5 team into the playoff. Cincinnati deserves to be in. And, you know, I hear the argument of, oh, they get into the playoff, they're going to get blown out. Who really cares? Uh, you want to know why? Because you look at the playoff semifinals, games have been lost by 39, 38, 35, 31, 27, 21, 20. Of 14 playoff semifinals, just three have been decided by one score or fewer. Give Cincinnati a shot for crying out loud. They are better than Oregon. They are better than Ohio State. Put them in the top four and let them lose their way out of a college football playoff spot because they're not going to get in otherwise. And I don't, I'm don't. i sick and tired of seeing the committee just do this to non-Power 5 teams. I could listen to the argument in the past. I can't do it now because I've seen Oregon struggle in the Pac-12 and I've seen Ohio State struggle in the Big Ten this year. I'm done with it. Cincinnati is a playoff team. Well done, Tanner. Thank you. I'm gonna drop try the mic take, and go home. Try and now take a breath in the middle. Yeah, you. I was gonna say, try and take a breath in the middle of that, though. I, it was a a really good argument. How good is Notre Dame? I ask this in all seriousness. I mean, they're still top ten. I think they're better than Oklahoma, Wake Forest, who are ahead of them, and Michigan for that matter. I'm not sure I agree with you on Michigan. I could totally listen to the argument on Oklahoma, Wake Oklahoma Forest. Oklahoma is 100 true. I I don't know if those teams are any good either. The reason why I ask that about Notre Dame is because the entire premise of Cincinnati being good is built on, upon the fact that Notre Dame is really good. And I don't know if they're actually that good because early in the season, we all saw that for, uh, Florida state game. That was as fluky as fluky can get out. And then the rest of the year, they beat Toledo by three. They beat Vir- Virginia tech by three and they lost in their only real contest other than Wisconsin. That Wisconsin win. Super impressive. Uh, or excuse me. Uh, yeah, the Wisconsin win super impressive for Notre Dame. But they lost head-to-head against Cincinnati. I don't know how good Notre Dame is. And I think that is a big part of the argument in favor or against Cincinnati. If you think Notre Dame's really good, then Cincinnati is deserving of being in the top four. And, and your argument makes perfect sense. I'm totally with you on that. I just don't know if they are that good. And if they're not... Well, then how can I respect what Cincinnati's done when they have really not beaten anybody on their schedule? And I, it's tough because I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth here because I do think that the group of five teams deserve more of a chance than they get from the committee. I think it's unfair the way that they are viewed. I just am not sure that this is the horse that I'm going to back because I don't know how good Cincinnati actually is. I think they're solid, but I don't know that they're deserving of a top four. And my biggest thing, too, is if we're going to go with strength of schedule, Ohio State, yeah, their strength of schedule is really good because they play in the Big Ten. Oregon strength of schedule is not that good. That's the, the one that's frust- is bad. That's the one that's frustrating for me, and I can get on board with where T Bone's coming from. Like Oregon lost to Stanford in overtime, and you're going to keep an team that's undefeated that yeah has a weak schedule but did beat a decent team on the road and is undefeated you're going to keep them behind Oregon that's the one that I can't get on board with yeah all of the other ones it's name it's name recognition you're gonna go with Ohio State jump Oregon if Ohio State wins out for what it's worth you got Ohio State you I mean 
Cincinnati, unfortunately, is like you mentioned, T-Bone. They're on the back burner no matter what. But if Ohio State, so if you're going to say Ohio State leapfrogs Oregon if they win out, then and if we're still going to go with the premise of the schedule, I think Cincinnati's ahead of Oregon because of Oregon's schedule. They have, sure, they are in the Pac-12, but okay, they blew out Arizona. Yeah, I Pac-12 watched that game. The yeah. Pac-12 is not very good, but let's look at their last four games. Okay, they blew out Arizona. That game was very close for quite a while before Arizona had to start throwing the ball. Then they picked them off and it ran away. They lost to uh, Stanford in overtime. They barely beat California, who's not very good. UCLA, I don't think is very good. They won by three on the road. I mean, they are not playing to the level of a top four team. Totally agree. And I I will listen to the argument if you want to do the strength of schedule. But the committee's also job is to use their uh, kind of eyeball it. And to me, if you watch Cincinnati, they look like one of the four best teams in the country. I don't think they're with a Michigan State. I don't think that they're with an Alabama or a Georgia, but I certainly think they are ahead of Oregon. I certainly believe that they are ahead of Ohio State. I think a big part of this is self-serving for the committee and what they decided to do here because Cincinnati has no chance of finishing the year top four. None. It's not going to happen. And the reason is because of teams like Ohio State or Michigan or Wake Forest or Oklahoma. Because at the end of the year, those teams are going to have better resumes if they continue winning out, which we don't know how that's going to go. But if they continue winning out, at least one or two of those teams is going to have a better resume at the end of the year than Cincinnati. Wake Forest. Well, don't they have one of the tougher schedules going the rest of the way? Wake Forest? Yeah. Uh, I have not Oklahoma does. I know Oklahoma does. I thought Wake Forest 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 has NC State. And that's basically it in terms okay, of top so they don't twenty-five have that opponents. Strong of one. Uh, but the other teams, Michigan, Ohio State, Oklahoma, uh, they've got pretty tough schedules. So they will all, depending on how they do, finish ahead of Cincinnati. And that's why for the committee, this is self-serving, is because they basically just, as you mentioned earlier, Tanner, they've they've shot. This is a warning shot across the bow for Cincinnati, basically telling all of their fans, "We want you to know now. Don't get mad at us in week twelve, week thirteen." when your team's not in the top four, because you already knew. You know now that is not going to happen. So is Oregon and Ohio State, should they be ahead of Cincinnati right now? I could listen to the argument that the answer is no, but they will be by the end of the year, and so the committee is just getting out in front of it. I still think, resume set aside, I believe if you put Cincinnati head-to-head with Oregon and head-to-head against Ohio State, they would beat both those teams. I wonder how Vegas would view that. I, I don't know the answer to this question, but I wonder how Vegas would uh, set the line for those matchups. I'm sure the I'm in home field advantage, but I'm thinking neutral. Yeah, field, sure. Just like, like the playoff. I'm sure Vegas would give it to the uh, well-known name in Ohio State and Oregon rather than Cincinnati. I, I still believe watching Cincinnati play that they are one of the four best teams in the country. And if they were to lose it, as a top four team, then yeah, that clearly sh- just shuts the door on their playoff hopes. But you've already shut the door on them, and I just think that's underappreciating what they have done, being undefeated to this point, going on the road, and beating, whether they are or not, a top-10 team at the time and still a top-10 team in Notre Dame. So this just popped up as we're talking about this. Chip Patterson, who covers football for CBS, was on the uh, on the DA show today, and he said, AAC's having a bad season, that's hurting Cincinnati. Indiana's having a bad season, that's hurting Cincinnati. It's true. I mean, that, that, Everyone else has a bad season. It hurts the team that looks great in that conference because of how bad the com- or the division or conference truly is. Yeah, they just they they haven't had a strong schedule, and that's there's just no other way to do it. And the problem is like they there was no way for them to. They tried to schedule up. They they, they scheduled Notre Dame. And you look at it, and Indiana was ranked last year and almost yep. took down Ohio State. So in theory, coming into the year, you look at it and then say, okay, there's another big win. I think what they makes tried. It, they tried yeah. to schedule as tough as they could, and it just didn't work out for them. I think what makes it very frustrating for me 
is like you think, and it, and this is part of the reason why I want to see the college football playoff expanded because we're not Agreed. even having this conversation. Yep. Is you look at college basketball, you could get a team that is like a Cincinnati that loses three, four games, which is like an undefeated season in college uh, football, and they would be in a weak conference like Cincinnati, and they're a top three seed or a top two seed in the NCAA tournament. Look at Dayton a couple years ago; they were a top two seed. You don't get that in college football, and to me, it just shows the disrespect. And it, and it happens because there is four. That's why they need to expand. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. On the other side, we'll give you an update on a really cool announcement for the city of St. Louis. There is also some news on the Henry Rugg situation. It's uh, very disheartening. So we'll tell you about that coming up on the other side and get to the Aaron Rodgers news as well. A lot to get into, plus questions and answers next on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Before we get to some of your questions, let's pass along a little bit of news from across the sports world here in St. Louis. The big news today is that the PGA Tour has announced that Bell Reeve Country Club has been awarded the 18th President's Club or President's Cup. Rather, it will be held in St. Louis in the year 2030. So the President's Cup is coming to St. Louis in 2030. Tanner, you'll be old enough to drink by then. This is basically like the Ryder Cup, but the U.S. versus the rest of the world, non-European style. So this is this is a really cool thing, man. I, I went to the uh, PGA Championship. What was that back in 2018? Is that right? Uh, I think. Yeah, 2018. Yeah. It was incredible. It's one of the greatest sporting events I've ever been to. I was following around Tiger Woods on Sunday, and it was uh, legitimately one of the most joyful sporting experiences I've ever been to. Uh, so having this here in St. Louis to be able to celebrate once again, it's going to be awesome, man. I know it's almost 10 years from now, so it's a lot of planning between now and then, but it is great. Yeah, well, and look, the game of golf is so widespread in terms of national media, and Joe Buck put together a package that played out at Bell Reeve, and they put it on social media from uh, the President's Cup talking about, and he ended his video by saying it's it's America's best sports town. And we've seen what the PGA Championship can do. You've seen the Blues, you've seen the Cardinals, you've seen the Battle Hawks, you're seeing soccer, you've seen NFL. You're you're about to see once again, and I think this is just an awesome thing for the city of St. Louis, and frankly for a lot of golf fans out there to be able to have this and bring their kids to and just kind of follow along with. Are you going to be going with Adelaide? She'll be 11 years old she'll at the be, time. Isn't that crazy? Oh my God, she will be 11 years old, but no, she'll be nine. nine. What kind of math was that? How old do you think my kid is? 10 like, years old. Wait a minute, how okay. old? Okay, yeah, almost 10 years yeah. old. Yeah, <laughs> probably because I'm going to try and get her into golf because her dad sucks at golf, so I figured, hey, she's going to be a lefty or a righty. Can you she, tell yet? She's a no, because she's kind of like in that phase where, where, you know, she grabs with both hands and then just kind of throws. I think she's going to be a righty because she's very dominant with that, like smacks things and, yeah. and touches things with her right hand. But if I can switch her to a lefty, you never know. Six five seven ambidextrous, right? T bone. There you go. Six five seven eight zero is the air comfort service sex line. Switch hitter uh, from the six one eight. Is BK going to get yelled at by the captain of the U.S. team during the Presidents Cup? Where did this come from? Uh, because oh, you're sure. probably going to tell him how what club he should use as watching him, and they're going to yeah, say it's you not go, your job, Brandon. Why do you go I know the six very iron little there. about anything. I know next to yeah. nothing. BK will about be standing golf. on the rope next to um, Rory McIlroy, and he'll be like, "Hey, Rory, use your pitching wedge here." <laughs> I don't think Rory's going to. Be a part of the president's cup right 
I have no idea. I don't know. I okay. just threw a name out there. I knew <laughs> Tiger Woods wouldn't be. <laughs> Tiger might be a part of it. Yeah, 2030, he'll for sure be a part well, of this. I mean, he's what, going to be, what, like 70 by then? Yeah. Well, maybe he'll play his, his, his back might really hurt then. Uh, the other piece of news from today in the NFL, the Green Bay Packers are going to be without Aaron Rodgers on Sunday against the Kansas City Chiefs. He has tested positive for COVID-19. And if Ruh-roh. you've been on Twitter at all today, you have seen this has become quite the controversy because Aaron Rodgers said before the season that he was vaccinated, Alex, except he didn't quite say that he was vaccinated he said he's been immunized which apparently was him uh, well it means that he tried apparently to get some kind of quote-unquote alternate treatment before the season not the actual vaccine how's that going for him well not great but um, a lot of people aren't having success right now. Doing his so. own research, I see, huh? Yeah, basically that's what he was doing. And he lobbied the NFL to have that be treated as if he was vaccinated. He was denied uh, that request. So he has been treated by the NFL all year long, apparently, as an unvaccinated player. So he's been treated under the false pretense of he is a vaccinated player. No, opposite. He, they have known all along that he has been unvaccinated. But everyone else believes he's vaccinated. We all thought that he was vaccinated. So he has been eating away from his teammates all year. All of the rules that you would expect, right? He he has to fly on a separate plane than the rest of his teammates. All of these things are taking place for... So what's the problem? Rogers. The problem is he's also been meeting with the media without any mask on, which is part of the protocols for unvaccinated players. He's supposed to be on Zoom, not in person without a mask. Oh, really? Yeah, because all of the other players that are unvaccinated are doing that. But it sounds like he wanted to keep the appearance as if he was vaccinated uh, and he is not so this is worth monitoring the NFL does have potential consequences for stuff like this Uh, if he has violated the protocols he can be fined or suspended depending on how much of a breach of the protocols concerned uh, confused by this though because the NFL knew he wasn't vaccinated, Correct. so why did they allow him to? Like, if, if Rodgers is going to get in trouble for this, the NFL should get in trouble for this. The team's PR should certainly be getting in trouble for because this. Because even if Rodgers says, no, I want to do it, they should say, well, you can't because it's against the Correct. rules. So, Or at I, least you should be telling the media, hey, just a heads up, I'm not this vaccinated. This guy's unvaccinated, yeah. so if, if you feel you, uncomfortable right. with this, you can go into a separate room to do the Zoom. Regardless of how any of us feel about this entire story, the league has rules, yeah. and I know here in St. Louis we know they don't necessarily follow their own rules, but they're supposed to for this, um, and if, if they're not... They've got a bit of a problem on their hands. Someone texted in 618. Didn't Rogers do all this before the pandemic anyway? Well, that's fair. Um, <laughs> so that's where we're it's at. It's not funny that. about what the unvaccinated part. It's more funny because he just doesn't like his team. Yeah, that's true. Or his family. Uh, apparently, That's true. That's been perfect. What is he? He's married or he's engaged, man. He doesn't talk to anybody from his family. True, does he? His brother works for ESPN and they don't talk. Yeah, well, look I'm at him. Serious. He looks like he's trying to be John Wick. Wasn't he John Wick for Halloween? Yeah. That makes sense why he doesn't like his family. Yeah. Um, all right. And then the last piece of news, Henry Ruggs. We talked about this story yesterday. Uh, the tragic crash that he was in that ended up killing a 23-year-old woman. He was apparently the, the new information that we have on this he was traveling 106 156 miles per hour prior to the moment that he crashed uh they said it was at like 125 at the moment of impact when his um uh when everything was activated 
this is and it was a gross, female man. and a dog that were involved. They were trapped in the vehicle once they mm. collided, and that's how they passed away. And prosecutor said his blood alcohol level was zero point one six, which is more than twice the legal limit. Today, the judge in this case set the bail at one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. If he missed it last night, Henry Ruggs has been released by the Oak or the Las Vegas Raiders. Rather, uh, this is a story that is only going to get worse as it goes on for Henry Ruggs. He is uh, he's lucky to be alive, frankly, today. Um, and so forget the football ramifications of this. The, the real life consequences are obviously significant. All right, before we get out of here, let's get to a couple of questions real quick. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service X line for questions and answers from the 314. Hey guys, Michelle Smallman had a proposal of snubbing the NFL's possible expansion offer earlier today and instead taking their settlement money to buy an NBA franchise. How do you guys feel about that possibility? It'd be great, but I don't think the NBA is planning on expanding anytime soon. And if they are, I don't see them looking at St. Louis as a spot to expand. I mean, the NBA. I'm not sure the Blues would want that. In same season timeline? Yeah, but it's bringing more bodies to downtown. So, I mean, I would imagine, yeah, the Blues aren't going to be fond of that at the same time. But there have been teams in the NHL that succeed with NBA teams. This market size, though? I don't know. That's the tough part. Yeah, I, I don't think that yeah, that would happen here in St. Louis. I can't think of a market size like this that has an NBA. I, and I just don't think team. NBA would even want. Minnesota, I, maybe? Like the coming here, Vegas is an NBA destination. Seattle's an NBA destination. There are multiple spots. Nashville is an NBA destination. I, I think as much influence and impact as St. Louis players are in the NBA right now with Tatum and Beal, and you're starting to see more and more players. I don't think the NBA views St. Louis as a marketable destination to take a team. So I would rather take the NFL team. I'm with you. I'd rather take the NFL team. I don't, I. I don't know if the NFL would put ramifications on that, too, if they would want you to bring in an NBA team if they were to settle it that way. I feel like they wouldn't want that. The NFL wouldn't either. So uh, I'm with you. I don't think I would take the NFL team. I don't know if you're going to get an NBA team because the NBA is looking to expand elsewhere. Carolina maybe would be the other uh, market that is similar in size. I've heard in the past that they have wanted to get another team back up in Canada. Like Vancouver used to have the Grizzlies. Yeah. Like I said, I I think St. Louis is like the the last spot that they would want to bring an NBA team. I just don't think it makes a whole lot of sense, to be honest. I I would love it. I'm an NBA fan. I, I, I mean, I would love nothing more than to have an NBA team. I prefer it over the NFL, to be honest with you. Yeah, I I don't think that they there's any chance that that would work out very well here in St. Louis. So I I don't think that would be uh, the best idea, even though I would personally love it. Uh, There's just too much discretionary income that's already going towards the NHL in the same season. Kofi Coburn starting center for the St. Louis. He's uh, too busy selling T-shirts. Somebody's got to make a buck. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in 10 minutes, we'll get into more likely to happen. But next, what do the Cardinals need to do this offseason in order to become the favorites in the National League next year? We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. This is exactly where you want to be listening to us. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. The expectations for the organization has always been the same to win a World Series. Losing in the wildcard game or losing in the NLCS is no different. Sure, you have a little bit more pride and we made it further, but at the end of the day, a championship is the goal and anything less than that is a disappointment. This year in 2022 is no different. Um, we will prepare in a way 
to take our shot at a championship. Um, and anything less than that will be a disappointment. That was Ollie Marmol at his introductory press conference. The question that I would like to ask you guys today, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. How do the Cardinals become the favorite in the National League? Because yesterday, right after the World Series has been wrapped up, Vegas put out their early odds on who the favorites are to win the 2022 World Series. As of today, of course, it is the Dodgers. They're at 5-1 to one in the American League. The favorite is still the Houston Astros. And then after that, you've got the Braves, Yankees, White Sox, Rays, all in that 10 or 12 to 1 category. The Cardinals are all the way down behind the Braves, Padres, Brewers, Giants, and Mets in the National League at 30 to 1 to win the World Series next year. Alex, what do you think they would have to do to get up into that category with the Dodgers and the Braves as one of the favorites in the National League based on their offseason? So they're behind all of those teams? Yeah, the Dodgers, Braves, Padres, Brewers, Giants, and Mets all have better odds right now than the Cardinals, Taking according the to Vegas. Counts. Blow it up, you mean? Blow it up and yeah, restart start from scratch. I would bet on them at 30-1. to 1. I think those are ridiculous odds, but... Um, I would say just tank and start going for first overall picks. But if they're yeah. not going to do that, because oh, okay. they're not going to. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I think it comes down to the starting point of getting one of those big-time shortstops, getting a big-time bat. I think you get a big-time bat, you're going to catapult yourself over the Mets, over the Brewers... I believe you'd do it over the Giants as well, and I think you'd be in the same category as the Braves and the Dodgers. And then after that, I think you just... I don't know if they can do anything to become the favorites because you're not going to be able to out-compete the Dodgers unless the Dodgers like lose three of their players at the beginning of spring training. Um, so I don't think one offseason is going to change the minds of people and put the Cardinals as the favorites in the National League, but I think you could be top three if you go sign that one big-time bat. You get that left-handed bat, the shortstop, whoever that is. I think that's a win in a lot of people's eyes, and I think they look at the Cardinals in the same light as the Dodgers, Padres, and Atlanta Braves. I think the way that they become the favorite is like you. The starting point is getting that big-time bat, whether that's shortstop or maybe it is DH and JD Martinez or someone like that. And then it but is. But Alex thinks he's fifty years old, so he probably should just retire. Yeah, instead. sorry, he's Kyle, he Kyle, use, sorry, he Kyle Schwarber, Walker, dude. Kyle Schwarber, DH, uh, and then. The other way to get up to that number one spot is not only just do that, but also have a bench that looks solid on paper that you can platoon with Edmund and Bader if you're going to go that route, and also have maybe another fifth starter that's a name that you can maybe it's a Zach Grink or someone like that, and then the bullpen has to have a couple more arms to it. So in other words, I just said that's how they become number one. That's not what they're probably going to do in the offseason, so I don't know if they will become number one. I'm kind of like you. I think you would have to go out there and get Max Scherzer and Corey Seager and then maybe add a bench bat. Uh, like Kyle Schwarber, and then, and then Vegas would end up uh, giving you the respect that maybe you deserve. I don't think there's anything they can do with any realistic uh, chances that would put them up there with the Dodgers. I really don't. And that is not my viewpoint. That's just based on the Vegas odds. I think that the them being 30 to one is wild. I find it shocking they're behind the Mets who can't even find anybody to take a job yeah, at the organization. They, and the Giants have like five guys under contract next year. Like their yeah. entire rotation is up for new deals. And frankly, I'm a little surprised they're behind the Brewers. Me like, too. I, like I don't, uh, and I get the Brewers I have really the, good pitching and staff. And they've got double the odds. The Brewers are 16 to one. The Cardinals are 30. But that, that is great. But the man. Brewers don't have bats. They can't hit. They can't hit the damn ball. And half of their their starters were super lucky this year with their injury luck. They they didn't get hurt. So I, regardless, whatever it ends up being, I don't think there's anything with any sort of realism that would allow the Cardinals to get up there in the Dodgers path. I do think by the end of the offseason, they could be similar to the Rays, 
or excuse me, the Braves, the Padres, the Brewers. I think they could get into that category, though. And the way they do it is kind of like you're saying, Tanner, you just shore up some of your weaknesses. If you can get a shortstop, whether that be Correa, Seager or Story, I think it'd have to be one of those three. I think you'd be in that category. Like anybody that is being fair about how they view the Cardinals, if you go into next year and you've got Goldie, one of those shortstops, Arenado and O'Neal, with Carlson potentially taking another leap in year two in the big leagues, that's going to be a really tough lineup to be like, eh, nah, Cardinals still can't hit. I think the thing that will hurt them ultimately, even if they make that move in terms of the odds, and I know that we're not, we won't view it that way, is just the question marks remaining in the rotation because you got That's Flaherty right. coming off an injury, Hudson coming off of Tommy John, Michael is coming off of his shortened season because of injuries. Adam Wainwright, can he do it again? I mean, that's the four guys that we talk about being locked into your rotation. And I don't know if Vegas necessarily looks at that, but I think a lot of people will look at that and say, okay, maybe do I really want to put money on it? Because I don't care how good your lineup is. As we saw this year, if you can't pitch and can't get guys out, you don't really stand a chance. But if you're going to talk about question marks in the rotation working against a team, then why are the Mets higher than the Cardinals who don't have a rotation? Why are the Padres higher than the Cardinals who none of their guys could get anybody out? Like, I, I don't buy. I think when you're making these rankings, you have to be elite in one area, like the Dodgers, elite in a lot of areas. The Brewers, elite in the pitching side of things. The Giants, elite when it came to offense. I think if you're the Cardinals, you got to be elite in one area. They, they are. That's the thing that's so crazy. But is I it's don't, just not sexy. But I don't. Yeah, they don't. Favorites aren't going to look at defense and say, "Oh, that's where they are elite." I, I think if you get one bat, you're putting yourself in an elite conversation. If you get one big time starting pitcher. You put yourself in that conversation. And to your point on, well, you look at the Padres, they have the same question marks. I think it's more name, because it's kind of it's, name, the, recognition. it's name recognition. Yeah. Kind of to your point of, well, the Cardinals are elite at defense. Yeah, no, nobody really looks at that in baseball and says, yeah, that's the difference yeah, maker. Blake Snell, you and Darvish. That's the thing. It's like, yeah, you can look at those guys, you can look at their numbers and go, eh, they weren't that great this year, but the name just sticks out. Really nobody in the Cardinals rotation, but I mean, Adam Wainwright and Jack Flaherty, and then that's about it. And honestly, I don't even know if uh, Jack Flaherty gets the name recognition that he probably deserves. Yeah, and so a lot of that is just injury related because the last yeah. couple of years he just hasn't well, been. Text line would agree with that though. Totally healthy. That's that's a fair point. He's not How, even an ace. Does any of this come down to the manager? No. Out of curiosity, they have a first-time manager who has never done it at this level. He's thirty-five years old. Do you think there's any any stock that goes into the fact that Ali Marmol and not? Uh, Mike Schultz is the manager next year. I think so a little bit because everybody ahead of them except the Mets. The Mets don't have a manager, right? Or do they? <laughs> Correct. Yeah, they don't have a manager. Yet or they're GM still yet. damn in front of the Cardinals. <laughs> okay, so that's why it doesn't make they sense. They don't have a rotation. They that's don't have why, a manager. They don't have a GM. But that's why this list is a and joke. They're in New York. We'll go ahead and make them whatever it was. Uh, I think it does because everybody else ahead of them has experienced managers, right? I mean, there's nobody. Council Melvin. Uh, you got Roberts, you've got, uh, who else was up there? Oh, the Braves and Snicker who just won a World Series. So I think the manager does have a factor in this because you're looking at a guy first time doing it, and he's the youngest manager in all of Major League Baseball. I'm sure it weighs into it a little bit, but I think what might skyrocket the Cardinals, not skyrocket, but move the needle with the Cardinals a little bit is what the rest of their coaching staff looks like. If they name a couple of Major League guys, maybe that helps. And that's what I was, I feel like, maybe I'm wrong here, but you are. The Cardinals still have two more spots to fill on their staff, the assistant hitting coach and their bench coach. If they fill that with one of and maybe two of Matt Holliday and Skip Schumacher, do you think that's going to change the way that Cardinals fans view this staff going into next year? 
Because I think it should. I, I think you should be pretty thrilled with the staff if they're able to add at least one of those two guys. And then maybe you add like a Ryan Ludwig as your assistant hitting coach as well. And you've got a little bit more uh, gravitas, uh, frankly, from your staff next year. I, I think it helps to have those former players on the staff. And if you add at least one of those two guys, and then, like I said, maybe Luddy as well. I, I don't know how you could have a whole lot of questions about the staff going in. I think year. it moves the needle a little bit. I don't think it, it puts you in to the upper echelon of the National League because I don't know how much coaching staff really goes into something like this. I think you're looking at more roster than anything. That's fair. But if you were to I'm add, thinking more from the fans' perspective. Oh, from the fans' this, perspective. Yeah, yeah I, I personally, I think if you get Skip Schumacher and or Matt Holiday it's going to get a lot more individuals that are skeptical of Ali Marmal to buy in. There are going to be some that just don't like Jeff Albert, and they're always going to go against the grain there. But if you bring in one of those guys, a Cardinals favorite, somebody who's been around and somebody who has success, I think it's going to get people a lot more on board than what it was before. I think Schumacher will do that. I don't know about adding a uh, adding a Matt Holiday in terms of bench coach, and that's not a shot against Matt Holiday. He's an awesome dude, but... I think he's kind of be viewed as the same as Marmol. Yeah, he played in the big leagues, but it's his first time coaching kind of at the major league level. He's been in college doing it, but will that translate to the majors? I think some people will draw some question marks on that. Schumacher's already been in that position. He was in San Diego. I think maybe he moves the needle just a little bit more than maybe Matt Holiday does. I think if you're a Cardinals fan and this is the route they go, you should be thrilled. And I think that you could make a strong argument that if you add one of these two guys, Holiday or Skip, you have upgraded your staff from where it was a year ago. Um, and I, I think that's a hell of a thing to be able to do in the offseason. I think we just bring Whitey back. <laughs> you can do that, too. It's 1218. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Coming up in 15 minutes or so, the Blues are getting ready to have Ryan O'Reilly and Oscar Sundquist back. What do they do with the roster when they return? We'll talk about that at 1230. But coming up next, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for more likely to happen. You're on 101 ESPN. What's more likely to happen? They'll figure it out. BK and Ferrario's most likely to happen. one of the worst ones you've ever done. We were, mid, we were mid-conversation. <laughs> All right, six, five, Let me know when you start singing on the air again. Is the Air yeah. Comfort Service text line sure. for more likely to happen? Nobody wants that. More likely to happen. Odell Beckham Jr. has another 1,000-yard receiving season or he's done in the NFL. More likely he does not end up becoming a, a starter again or he has another 1,000-yard receiver. Season. I don't think he's going to be done in the NFL. How old is he? 28? He's 29 years old. He'll be 30 next year. I don't By the way, I should, probably, like I should probably give the news uh, from the NFL today as well. The NFL is having a wild day. Kevin Stefanski apparently told his team this morning that Odell Beckham Jr. will not be with the team for the rest of the season. All right, and Baker Mayfield celebrates. So Odell this year will finish with 230 yards. Last year, he had 320 yards. That's pretty close. You're halfway there to a thousand. More likely he gets another thousand yard season or he never starts again in the NFL. I I can't say he's never going to start again in the NFL. So I guess I'm going to say more likely that he gets a 1000 yard season. I mean, look, if Antonio Brown can get back into the NFL, I I would Odell Beckham Jr. Can I just got to find the right team? Frankly, he needs a Tom Brady. He needs a guy who can settle him down and just get him get him accustomed to any ideas. I know. I'm just, that's what he needs. I don't know who it could be. The Rams could use him. 
God, actually, I, I could see the Rams freaking do that. I could see the Chiefs doing it, too. Total Rams move. Uh, oh, I then he's going to go and just that. be terrible the rest of the season. Oh, yeah, so. they don't have a quarterback. Yeah, I, just, I think he's got to go somewhere, and he's got to have a quarterback and a head coach settle him down and just get him back in. So I, I just don't see him being done in the NFL. So I'm going to say it's more likely he gets another 1,000-yard season. So I don't see him being done in the NFL, but the scenario I'm given, I'm going to take that because I don't think he's going to be a 1,000-yard receiver again. I think he'll play it for another I don't know, five, ten years, whatever it is going to be for him. But I just don't know if he'll ever be that thousand-yard receiver again. I think he's more now of a two-three kind of wide out. He'll get you about 700 yards. So I think it's more likely he won't start a game in the NFL again. I would love to hear from the text line. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. What's the comp for Odell Beckham Jr.? Frank Gore. I can't remember anything quite like this before. His first three years in the NFL, 1,300 yards, 12 receiving touchdowns, 1,400 yards, 13 receiving touchdowns, 1,350 yards, and 10 receiving touchdowns. He had one of the best starts to a career in NFL history, statistically speaking, at least. And since then, he has not been the same guy. He got hurt in year four, and he's never been the same afterwards. What is the comp for this? Because I can't think of a whole lot of receivers that had that kind of start and then just completely disappeared Was this over quarterback the next Eli years. Manning those first three years? Uh, yeah, I believe so. So you got to find a guy who, who's got similar styles to Eli Manning. I would have thought Baker would have, oh. but it just hasn't worked. I don't know if this is because he's hurt. I don't know if it's because mentally he's not in the same space. I don't know what happened to Odell, but he's clearly not the same guy out there. I would say it's more likely that he's never really a factor in the NFL again. At this point in time, his team is literally telling him to go away. They couldn't trade him for anything yesterday, and now it sounds like it's at least possible that he gets released. That's crazy, man. Someone said from the 573, Le'Veon Bell, if he was a receiver. Yeah, but Le'Veon, that's how running backs go. Receivers, I think that's part of what makes this story so intriguing is that you don't see this from receivers very often. Yeah. I see a lot of flash in the pan running backs. Like Chris Johnson, remember him from the Titans? Oh, he I was awesome him. for like three seasons and then it was just over. It was just over. Um, I it, This doesn't happen very often at wide receiver. All right, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for more likely to happen. Guys, more likely to happen, more likely to return first, actually. Ryan O'Reilly or Oscar Sunquist? More likely to return first for the Blues. Ryan O'Reilly or Oscar Sunquist? So both are expected to be back around the same time. I would say it's more likely Oscar Sunquist is back before O'Reilly because O'Reilly's O'Reilly's not traveling with a team. He's going to meet with a team later. At least that's what my understanding is because he's still Craig Brewey gave him the 10 day protocol. So he's not even I think he's had seven or eight right now. Um, Sunquist has been skating. The only thing they need is the approval from the medical staff and then the approval from Sunquist. And he was doing a battle drills yesterday in practice. So I, I think that when Sunquist is eligible to come off of the injured list, which is Sunday, I believe, against the Ducks, he will come back. Ryan O'Reilly is going to be available at some point in the near future, but you got to get him a couple of days of practice in before you get him on ice. Yeah, I think it's more likely we see Sonny first because he's, like you said, with the team. Uh, I think we'll see O'Reilly when they come home, which is what, a week from Thursday, yeah. if Tuesday. I'm not mistaken? Oh, yeah, Thursday, yeah, because Tuesday's the Jets. Yeah, a week yeah, from Thursday. Yeah, so a week from Thursday. I think that's when we'll see O'Reilly. I think he'll come back when they return home. I think we could see Sonny, like you said, on Sunday or the Tuesday in Winnipeg. 
I'm going to go the opposite. I think they wait as long as they can on Sonny to make sure he's at 100%. And you've got the cap constraints that you've got to deal with as well. So I wonder if they're going to try to find some flexibility, whether that be via trade or waivers, however they decide to do this. I'm going to go Ryan O'Reilly's the first one back on this one. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for more likely to happen. All right, guys, more likely upset this weekend in the NFL. The Cleveland Browns take down the Cincinnati Bengals or the Philadelphia Eagles take down the LA Chargers. Is Cleveland considered an upset mm-hmm. to take down Cincinnati? Cincinnati yep. just lost to Mike White. Cincinnati really is a good, two though. and a half point home favorite against the Browns. Did and Mike White called out Peyton Manning. He said he's going to break Peyton Manning's record. Okay. I respect that guy. <laughs> I don't. And at the all. Chargers are only a one and a half point road favorite um, at the Eagles, surprisingly. I'm going to go the Eagles because you know what? You got to water those roots right now and turn those into some flower petals. And I think Sirianni's going to find a way to do that. He's going to need a new reference for his speech, though, because the flower's already flowered. Did the flowers die? No, well, well they, no, got they, a, they got a new message this week. Yeah, I can't wait the, to hear the message. message. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be. Now we're going to talk about branches on ride, trees. Yeah, yeah, this up. week it's going to be about yeah. the leaves that oh, are falling from it, the trees. You got to be like foliage. You got to be a branch. You got to be a branch, and you got to hoist those leaves rather than fall off. I thought it was going to be like dough. We got to rise up like dough does or something. There you go. I think I'm going to go Eagles over Chargers as well. I think the Cincinnati Bengals are going to kind of. I don't know what the how to say it, but after losing the Mike White and the Jets, this feels like that game where they just come out and absolutely obliterate the Cleveland Browns. So I'm going to say it's. I like the chances of the Eagles beating the Chargers at home. For some reason, I just have this sense in my gut telling me the Chargers aren't as high up as we thought they were after the first couple of games. So I think I'll take the Eagles. I think I'm going to go with the opposite. I'll take the Browns on the road against Cincinnati. I Maybe I'm off on this. I don't know how the Eagles end up beating the Chargers. That Eagles team is not good. I thought the same that the the Patriots couldn't beat the Chargers. The Eagles this year, though, their wins are against the Falcons, the Panthers, and the Lions. Every time they go against a quality opponent, they get demolished. So I I have to imagine that the Eagles are going to lose this one as well, but the NFL has been weird if, this year, and I've been wrong about everything. If the Eagles beat the Chargers, are we looking at the Chargers more like the Panthers? Mm. If the Eagles beat the Chargers, I'm out on them as a real contender. Yeah. I don't, know if I'd, I don't know if I'd three straight at that point. I don't know if I'd put him in the same light as that, though. Because I feel like Carolina's like that team that's just going to hover around that 500 mark. Carolina's a team that's questionable quarterback play. Carolina's a team that's only good because Christian McCaffrey's in the lineup. And that's because what, their defense is really good. Yeah. And the Char- defensive line is ridiculous. The Chargers, I, I feel like there's a lot more optimism there than the Panthers. The Patriots are a three and a half point road favorite against Carolina this week. That's, that's a little good. surprising. I thought it'd On be the more. road? Uh, the way Carolina's, Carolina's been playing, been of late, I'm not shocked. And New England's defense is playing really well. Yeah, Carolina's been awful. I, I know, but Carolina should probably start PJ Walker. That means that uh, you would favor the Patriots by nine and a half in New England. Oh, nine Could, and a half. I thought you said three. And it a is half. on the road. It's a three point swing, oh. so it means neutral site. They would favor the uh, the Patriots by six and a half, and in New England, they would be favored by nine and a half. I'd give them that still. Wow, interesting. Panthers I, have looked awful, dude. I guess that seems they can't do anything with the ball. If it's not like a lot, I might take the Panthers straight up this weekend. Well, we're getting a little frisky over there. I see. Someone's going to go 0 and 1 already. <laughs> yeah, who, who could have seen that one coming? All right, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for more likely to happen. The Cardinals are more likely to spend at least $10 million on a DH slash bench bat. Or a fifth starter? Which one are they more likely to spend at least $10 million on? A fifth starter or a DH slash bench bat? DH bench bat. I mean, that's the that's the one area that has to be fixed. 
And I think the best way to fix it is to go out there and find yourself a DH or bench bat. If you're not getting a shortstop, it means you're sticking with Edmundo Sosa, but you're looking at it saying, okay, but we can still go get that big time bat. And for $10 million, there's a lot of options out there. So I'll say bench bat slash DH. I think it'd be starter. If they want to go add a like fifth starter, I think they look at those veteran guys like a Grinky Kershaw, a John Gray, guys like that. I think that'll be around that $10 million range. I think bench bat, they'll add a bat, but I don't know if he'll be $10 million. And they'll have the cost control guys in Gorman and Yepes, so that's why I think I will say starting pitcher. Uh, how much did Shaman and I cost? Did we say $10 million? That's what he's projected yeah, to make? like that. Well, he's the guy. So they're going to spend more than $10 million on a starting pitcher because wow. he's going to be a Cardinal next year. Wow. I'm all in on this, man. He's Easy, Owen Wilson. He's the clear-cut number one option for the Blue or for the Cardinals this this he's offseason. He's good on the Blues too. He's look good on either one. Probably I'm a top four defenseman. Well, okay, easy over there. Oh, Speaking of top four defensemen, is there anything that Scott Perunovic can do to prove in the AHL that he is deserving of an opportunity in the NHL this year? We'll talk about that coming up next. And how do you handle this roster when Ryan O'Reilly and Sunquist return? We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. Giving you the picture, the real big St. Louis sports picture. It's BK and Ferrario, live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. Yeah, I think, you know, doctors and clearing him. Um, <clears throat> also, you know, like I said, he's got to clear himself. Like, I mean, when he feels he's ready. But also there's a date that uh, they have, and um, we're kind of going to go by the target date right now. So that was Craig Berube yesterday when asked when Oscar Sunquist will be back. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Sonny and Ryan O'Reilly are on their return soon. It sounds like within the next week or so, you should be able to see both of those guys back on the ice for the Blues. By the way, the Blues back in action tonight with pregame coverage beginning at 8 o'clock against the LA Kings. Alex, what do you think the Blues are going to do cap-wise, roster-wise, whenever these guys do return? Because O'Reilly's easy. You just put him back on the roster and you make do with it. You probably end up sending Dakota Joshua back down to the AHL whenever that happens. But then what? What do you do for Sonny? Because you've got to figure out how to make it work with this $2.75 million cap hit. Yeah, this is going to be... Uh, I'm I'm fascinated by the wizardry that Doug Armstrong is going to have to accomplish with this. So I was looking at this last night. Dakota Joshua going down clears about $750,000. So you're looking at $2 million that you're going to have to clear for uh, Oscar 1. Sunquist. 1.5, it looks like. Oh, is it 1.5? Mm-hmm. When you remove that, that 750 k So then the first person that you're going to go to is Kyle Clifford because he's making about a million dollars or he's making a million dollars in terms of cap hit this year. You would probably have to put him through waivers or you would have to cut him through your roster. That's going to be a tough decision because a lot of the guys really like Kyle Clifford and he's 30 years old and he's a good person to be able to throw into your lineup if an injury occurs, but that's a million dollars that you can clear. If you don't go that route, well, then you might be going twofold in another position. You might be looking at both Jake Neighbors going back to juniors and Clem Costin being sent back down to the minors because that opens up the equivalent of what actually it opens up more than what Kyle Clifford would be worth. And you're only cutting you're basically going down to one extra guy on your bench when at full strength. The problem that the Blues have right now is they they can't get they they really can't send down any of their defensemen because the two guys you'd be looking at are Mikla and Wallman, 
And there's no real offset there if you're bringing up a Scott Perunovic because they make the same amount of money. I forgot that they, they would also have the 800K that they could send down with Hofer as well. So you're down to... A but Ville Husso, he's 750K. So. I don't think his money's off the, the books, though. So I think the way that oh, it would it's work, on there you're since basically he's right around a million dollars is what you'd have to remove. So I think it would just have to be the one. And are, are you saying that you think that the most likely guy, if it ends up being that, is the million dollars from Clifford? It would make the most sense if you feel like Jake Neighbors is proven to be an NHL player and you really like Clem Costin. I mean, Clem Costin has played pretty much every game since he's been called up because the coach really likes what he does. And Kyle Clifford's only gotten to a couple of games because of the COVID situation and the Blues not having enough roster players. And plus, they really like Dakota Joshua as well. So Kyle Clifford would seem to be the likely scenario here. But if if you're going roster chemistry, I just don't know if you're going to cut Kyle Clifford for nothing. Maybe you send him down to the AHL. Nobody claims him like Chris Thorburn did the 18-19 season. And you have him go down and be a voice for those younger players for this season. That might mean that be the best case scenario for the Blues. But the problem is, does Kyle Clifford get claimed off of waivers? Because he is a guy who has won two Stanley Cup championships and a million dollars for an enforcer is always an important player. So this is going to be a tough decision for Doug Armstrong. I think, frankly, what it comes down to is between today and tomorrow, who performs the best? With Kyle Clifford on COVID, he's kind of in a, uh, between a rock and a hard place. So it's going to really be how good does Clem Costin, Jake Neighbors, and Dakota Joshua look? I feel like you got three options. Jake Neighbors, Clem Costin. And as you mentioned, uh, Kyle Clifford as well. And the reason why I mentioned Jake Neighbors in that is because he does still have the option of going back down to juniors. You've got the nine games. So I do wonder, do you consider holding him back over the next couple of games? Do you do you wait to get to that ninth game until you have to make a decision on Oscar Sundquist to be able to determine, okay, do we keep him up? Do we send him down? You keep that flexibility open at least. So you don't have to make the determination yet on Jake Neighbors, I like what we've seen from him thus far. I would keep him on the on the NHL roster. I would not send him back down to juniors because then you lose him for the year. He's down in juniors for the rest of the season. Yeah. I've liked what we've seen so far this year from Clem Costin as well, and I think there's upside there. And you don't want to lose a player in Clem Costin who's 22 years old who's who might go back to the KHL if he's not feeling like he's wanted here. And if you go back to the AHL, I mean, you're going to lose that momentum in terms of a player who feels like he's making progress. I feel like this is a situation where I... I understand they like what Kyle Clifford gives them in the locker room. But when you compare him at 30 years old with, let's be honest, not a whole lot of upside at this point in his career. We basically know what he's going to be able to give you. I would rather have what I can get out of Jake Neighbors and Clem Costin the rest of this season. And if you're going one for one, James Neal versus Kyle Clifford, James Neal plays a more significant role. I can use him up and down my lineup. We've seen him get opportunities on that top line when guys are out. We've seen him out there on the power play. He's somebody that can help you in more ways than Kyle Clifford can. He's got a more expansive role. I can't get rid of James Neal right now. So if you're telling me it's got to be neighbors, Costin, Neal, or Clifford, it's a pretty easy decision for me. I would go Kyle Clifford and send him down and uh, let the chips fall where they may after that. I think the best case scenario for this Blues team is if Kyle Clifford were to clear waivers because you can still have him on your roster in an emergency situation where an injury occurs or more COVID problems. You bring him up and he can still be a part of this roster again. But look at what the impact of Chris Thorburn was in the minor leagues for a lot of these younger players who were part of this roster now. Thorbs has talked about it so much of what he was able to accomplish being a leader in that minor league locker room. And on top of it, the minor leagues are basically run by Blues coaches. So it's the same system. 
That would be the best case scenario for the Blues. The problem is I just don't know if he would get through that situation. But in terms of NHL roster, you can't cut Jake Neighbors or send him back to the juniors because he's been so good for you. And frankly, I'm not moving Clem Costin, who is in his final year before he's an RFA. I want to find out what this guy is at the NHL level. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. Somebody from the 314 says, what about Marco Scandella? It feels like trading him would be the smartest option. So the problem with that is if you trade Marco Scandella, you've got to replace him in your top four defensemen, and that's probably going to come at a cost. You're likely going to have to bring back somebody that's making at least $2 million. So you don't really gain a whole lot there. And Marco's played pretty yeah, well this say, year. People are underestimating what Marco has meant to this team. He's been really good. There's a reason the penalty kill is second best in the National Hockey League. It's because Marco Scandell is playing the second most ice time on that penalty kill. You you can't get rid of Marco Scandella. And I know he's making 3.275 mil, but like... Marco is an important player for this team right now, and you can't move on from him just because you're trying to open up cap space for a forward. That possibility, though, brought up something interesting to me, Alex. What do you need to see from Scott Perunovich down in the AHL for him to force the Blues' hand? Because so far he has two goals and eight assists. He has ten points in his first six games down with the Springfield Thunderbirds. He's been outstanding yeah. for them, at least in terms of the numbers. I'm not going to pretend like I've watched a whole lot of Springfield Thunderbirds hockey. Why not, man? But the, Get the on top of this. I will say I've seen a couple of the highlights. He's been incredibly impressive. He was very good during the preseason here uh, with the Blues as well. Is there anything he can do, realistically speaking, that will force the Blues' hand to make a move to bring him up to the big league roster? Continue doing this. I mean, honestly, there's nothing he can do right now for them to say, we have to get this guy up here because the Blues have been playing well. And there's no spot for him right now. People will say, well, just sit somebody else, sit a a Jake Wallman, a Robert Portuzo. But you need Robert Portuzo in your lineup just as much as you need a Jake Wallman in your lineup because they're playing so well. He just needs to keep doing this. If he keeps producing points and his plus minus rating is a plus two, which for all the points he's putting up makes me believe. And I know plus minus is such a fickle team stat, T-Bone. But it makes me believe that he's on the ice for goals against. So, Want to see a little bit more defense from Scott Perunovich? Maybe get that plus minus up a little bit, but just keep doing what you're doing because as soon as an injury takes place or as soon as maybe somebody stumbles, whether it be Jake Wallman, Nico Mikola, then they'll call up Scott Perunovich. But Jake Wallman and Nico Mikola both are on one-way contracts, which means if you send them down, they've got to go through waivers and you're not going to lose the depth on defense right now. So Perunovic, at least from what it looks like until an injury pops up, is destined for the AHL this season, but just continue to dominate. One thing worth keeping an eye on. We did not mention this gentleman, and he's been playing better this year, but Robert Bortuzzo also makes $1.3 million. And if the if the Blues felt like they had seen so many great things from Perunovic and defensively he is where he needs to be, that is one spot that you could potentially use him as your third third pairing defenseman on the right side uh, with Jake Wallman. That that is one possibility as to how they could go about this. Is a Robert Bortuzzo maybe goes through waivers and the Blues decide to bring up Perunovic that. That is one other option that we did not discuss. I think that's one of the most least likely scenarios for the Blues in in moving him through waivers because that's a massive blow to your defense. Um, I don't know if they feel like Nico Mikula is ready to be an everyday defenseman for you. It would have to be Perunovic who goes into that role. Yes, but now you have four lefties and two righties on your roster. And I I just I don't know if you want to mess with that right now. And look, 
your your penalty kill takes a massive blow if you move on from Robert Bortuzzo because he's on the penalty kill just as much as Marco Scandella is. So I think that is the one of the more least likely scenarios for the Blues. Kyle Clifford makes more sense than Robert Bortuzzo. I'm with you. I'm just saying it as an option because you have a very good defenseman right down out, down in the minors who could potentially force your hand. Yeah, but you want to let him keep going, man. Let him let him feel. This is his first time in pro hockey since I'm he's being injured. Let him keep doing this because as soon as an injury pops up, which they will, they're going to happen. Put him up here and let him Wally Pip somebody. Let him say, hey, you know, he can't go back to the AHL. I'm not saying force it, but if if he continues playing this way and we're having this conversation one, two, three weeks down the road, I I think at some point there's going to have to be serious questions asked as to whether or not he deserves to be up with the, the NHL club. Yeah. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, what happens to the Cardinals if they end up sticking with Paul DeYoung this offseason? I know it's not a conversation anybody wants to have. might be a conversation we need to have. We'll do that coming up at 1 o'clock. But next, the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Here on 101 ESPN with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Alex, what do you got for us, man? Boys, I'm about to uh I'm about to ruin T-Bone's life. Oh boy. T-Bone, you can't go to Texas. Okay. Here's why. There's a bar down there. Okay. I like bars. Multiple bars. Well, well, there's a lot of bars, probably. But this one in particular have has insti- in, instituted a new rule. Is that the right word? No tender? <laughs> no, there's Tinder in Texas. There's always Tinder in Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas, T-Bone. What I've heard. It actually stays the same. <laughs> Way to go. Touche. No, this is regarding uh, Christmas music. Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You is now officially banned in this bar in really? Texas until December 1st. The bar owner, she said that this was a inside joke among the bar's longtime regulars, but then it turned into, okay, we have to implement this. They put a sign up that says, if you... If it, basically, it's a jukebox that you can come up to when you plan the songs. Yeah. And it says, if you choose All I Want for Christmas is You before December 1st, that song will be automatically skipped. And then after December 1st, that song is only allowed to be played once. Once a night. And if you play it more, it's going to be skipped. I found the perfect sounder for this garbage. What the f***? That's not true, Jamie Rivers. This is the smartest thing you could have done. It's stupid. I actually think this is a pretty smart this thing. If you're in a bar and, this, and there's a person that's playing the same songs over and over Because there's always and over, one. It's the absolute worst. That Not only should that be skipped, that person should be thrown out of the bar immediately, immediately. and forbid, forbidden from ever coming back into the, yeah. through the doors. And, and here's the thing. Like I have am, a lifetime ban from I this don't, bar. I don't agree with Christmas music before Black Friday. Black Friday is when Christmas music should begin. I agree with that assessment. And if I'm going into a bar and there's some D-bag that's playing All I Want for Christmas is You, Tanner, I'm looking at you right now, multiple times because hey, I want to sing to Mariah Carey. Should be kicked out. The other thing is here in St. Louis, at at least it's like 30 degrees right now. So I can understand, you know, you're getting into the Christmas spirit. I disagree it's with it. Legitimately 48 degrees outside. It's going to be cold tonight, okay? Freeze warning. It might have been. It might as well have been 25 degrees this morning. It was freezing. Um, it, right now, I get it. In Texas, it is not 25 degrees. It's like 70. We're going by that model. It's never close yeah, to that. I was going to say, it's never Christmas in yeah, Texas. In Miami, you shouldn't listen to Christmas music. Whoa. Hot take. 
No, Whoa. you're not allowed. If you move to Miami, okay. you don't get to listen well, to Christmas that's music. That's a terrible take, man, because everyone needs the holiday season. Yeah, and you get to enjoy it and celebrate it, but there's no snow. There's no I Mariah Carey all I want Christmas for Christmas either, is you. Huh? It's totally different. It's a, it's a different experience when you're down in Miami. 618, some of us feel holly and jolly after Halloween, guys. Well, you shouldn't. Amen. You have to wait until November 26th, then you can feel nope. holly and jolly. Nope. Yeah. In the meantime, you should be feel festive as yes, we're getting ready every, for Thanksgiving. My wife has taken down the Halloween decorations at home and she's left the fall decorations out. When do you have to take the Halloween decorations down? What's the November 1st? I think November 1st. Like they should be down right now? Yeah. yeah. I've already taken down oh, our boy. stuff yeah. at my grandparents. Yeah, my, my, my wife. Behind. My wife does a great job. She takes down all slacker. of the pumpkins. Well, not the pumpkins, but the Halloween themed pumpkins. And she leaves the fall decorations out from now until November 26th. And then we bust out the Christmas decorations. That makes sense. And on January 3rd, Christmas comes down. I have oh, learned the uh, the invaluable lesson this year, as we have just moved into our house for the first time, as you know, Alex, um, that every season comes with new towels and new Ooh. decorations around the house. I love new towels. Um, it's it's pretty wild. I, I was unaware of what home goods means until we, uh, we purchased a home. And now that place has become our new target. Uh, I have a junk drawer story for you, if you guys don't mind. Uh, I think we're out of time, T-Bone. Are we out of time? I think you're going to want to hear this one. Oh, okay. So I was informed this morning that one of our co-workers yesterday her car broke down after after she got off her shift well i know who didn't go help her uh i did not i would have been more help actually what a jerk. and that's the story so like that's it her car broke down yesterday after work it was the the afternoon slash evening shift and the fast lane the good gentleman that they are they decided to help her out all she needed was was a quick jump right which one of those guys, those four on their show, do you think had a jumper cable available in their car? BT, Stalter, Jamie, Barnes, four manly men. Which one of those four do you think had had jumper cables available? Like yeah, I'm talking question. about you, Jamie Rivers. Which one of them do you think had jumper cables available to them? Well, feels um, like a trick question. You just pointed at Jamie. I wouldn't have done that, by the way. Did, did, uh, I would do you say, think he had him. He's a he's he's a very manly man. Jamie Jamie drives a truck, but doesn't BT BT drives a truck as well? Hey Jamie, he's been pointing at you. He has been just throwing blasphemy out of. I hear my name a story about here? you today. Well, okay, well hang on. <laughs> First of all, are these things on? Deny, deny, deny. Yeah. Okay, what's the story? What do you got for me? So yesterday, I was told that there was a uh, there was a coworker that works here with us at Hubbard Radio. Yeah. Who their car broke down and they needed a jump after after the show. That's correct. And you guys, being the wonderful men that you were, were more than happy to help out. Yes. And all she needed were jumper cables. Correct. How many of you guys had them available? Okay, so. <laughs> Again, of, of the four manly men, and you all guys staring are, at us the right answer now, is, which one of you guys had them? The answer is zero. Now, there's, there's good cause for this. BT had some contraption that, I don't know, somebody sold him that didn't have the right parts to it. And I had just gotten a new truck. Okay. In my old truck is everything, and I put it just in a big, like, Rubbermaid tub because, you know, you're cleaning out the old truck, trading it in, get rid of it. I'm like, I'll deal with this tomorrow, which is now, like, last month. It's like, keep <laughs> That's going. how I do my laundry. And so 
the jumper cables that I have, because I usually have like one for all my kids and their vehicles, sure. a set for my kids, set for myself, and they weren't available. They that we did not have them. Oh, I so, Salter was coming in and getting angry with us too. No, no, but Anthony and I did break into several vehicles out oh, in the really? parking lot. Yeah, they were unlocked. How many windows did we bust no, open? No, we didn't have to oh, no. break any windows, but we did. Uh, we did enter the vehicles. Well, I would say without permission. <laughs> That's good. That's Multiple not illegal. Times. That's Multiple not illegal. Times. Um, and none to our surprise, none of our vehicles that are from the station had booster cables either. So, I did not see that coming. Yeah. I, my guess would have been meat. I would have been more help. This is the most stunning revelation in the history. Would you have known how to put them on? The red one doesn't go on the black one. (laughs) All right. I would have had no idea what to do with them. He would have handed them to the coworker and said, "Here you go," and then just left. I don't blame him. I, I would have I would have said here I have these for you. Do yeah. you know oh, how to look, use them? Look, I have these. What are these called? I'm not sure what they do. I don't know how to use them, but I'm sure you can use them. But you know what I did when I got home last night? Put them back in my smart bam. Yeah, smart bam. So if anybody needs uh, some help, uh, I'm available now. To be fair to all of you guys, BT being the hero that he is, he went down to AutoZone. He grabbed some. Oh, he put on a cape. Like he literally put on a cape and was out of here. And God bless you guys. And you were great coworkers. I just wanted to say I, I was very surprised that none of you had jumper cables. When me, who has no idea what to do with cars. I was I very disappointed in, in all of us <laughs> as well. Did, did okay. Keith put those jumper tables in your I just didn't know why you guys were muttering my name in here. I had to He's been pointing at myself. you and saying all kinds of things, Jamie. Right, as Jamie Rivers, the former superstar NHL defenseman with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, what happens to the Cardinals if they get stuck with Paul DeYoung's contracts next year? Oh boy, didn't want to talk about that, but we got to next on 101 ESPN. This is exactly where you want to be listening to us. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio. On 101 ESPN. So, what happens if the Cardinals are stuck with Paul DeYoung? I know it's not what any of us are hoping for this offseason, but I do think it's a question that's worth exploring because. Once the offseason officially kicks off and there are signings and trades that are likely to happen, well, we're not sure that it's actually going to happen this offseason the way that it normally would because the CBA negotiations are taking place now, Alex, and the deadline is December 1st. If they don't get a deal done, we might not be able to see player transactions until like February, depending on how long that thing drags out. So the Fastlane was talking about this a couple of weeks ago, and here's what they had to say about the value that Paul DeYoung might have to other teams. What do you think Paul DeYoung would uh, uh, fetch the Cardinals Very in little, the offseason? Uh, to be totally honest, I mean, look at, look at the couple of years that he's coming off of, and he's still attached to some money. So, like, if you're looking to make a splash via trade, well, Paul DeYoung's probably not going to be your splash guy. If you want to rid yourself of the question of Paul DeYoung, I think this is the offseason. I agree with Anthony Stalter, and I agree with their sentiment that you're probably not going to get a whole lot for him. The problem is, if this... But I if thought this, we were getting Sean Manaya for him. Well, fingers crossed, man. Fingers crossed. We can all hope. I hope Oakland's dumb enough for that move. If... This offseason gets off to a late start and the CBA negotiation drags on longer than any of us hope. And that's all pushed back and teams are kind of holding their money tied and they're waiting, waiting, waiting. It's possible you end up getting stuck with him and you just have to eat that six million dollars next year. And he's going to serve a better role by being on your team than he is by trading him for a bag of balls elsewhere. What does that mean for their offseason plan, in your guys' opinion? Does that change anything in terms of what they're able to do otherwise? Because that is a roster spot. Like The most important thing that that would take up is a roster spot, even more so than the salary, necessarily. Yeah, I mean, 
scares me, honestly, because it feels like they're not going to be going after any bats in the offseason. Because if you keep De, uh, De Young, I think De Young becomes either your starting shortstop or he's your bench bat. And with him, along with the catching spot, again, with Yepes and Nolan Gorman and Lars Nupar, there's not a whole lot of bench opportunities for guys to step in. So I, I think if Paul De Young doesn't get traded and he is here, then he's probably your DH along with Yepes and Nolan Gorman. And you're going to just go pitching in the off season. And frankly, I, I just, I think that's a miss for the Cardinals because you need more offense. We just said the learning lesson we took from the Braves series to win the world series was slug baby slug. Paul DeYoung's not slugging anymore. I think it becomes the focus is now shifted from the big bat to shortstop that you have to start looking at the big bat at the DH spot. And then you can platoon a Gorman with a Tommy Edmond, and you can platoon a Juan Yepes with a Harrison Bader. And then you have uh, uh, Paul DeYoung kind of splitting time with Edmundo Sosa, and whoever's hot can take that job. And then that's the way I see it going. I, I think if you can't move on from Paul DeYoung, it takes you out of the shortstop market, but there's no reason that you still can't get involved with a – uh, whether it be Chris Bryant, maybe for DH, or J.D. Martinez. Maybe it's Nelson Cruz on just a one-year rental deal. That way you have an offseason to kind of reset and then maybe move on from Paul DeYoung and look at someone else in that position. So I think it takes him out of the shortstop market, but I still think they have to go get that big bat, and it just shifts the focus from shortstop to a guy that can DH. I think it takes you out of the infield market completely. If you end up with Paul DeYoung as part of your roster next year, you're talking about Arenado, Goldie, Edmund, Sosa, um, DeYoung, <laughs> And probably Juan Yepes as as your six infielders going into next season. I, I think that's kind of all you can have there. If you're going to end up getting somebody for that DH spot and you potentially take Newt Bar off of this roster, um, I, I think that's the way that you'd have to look at it. Uh, you're, you're getting that fourth outfielder. So I think you end up looking more at the Kyle Schwarber type of market as opposed to somebody that's going to be playing first base slash DH. I think Juan Yepes fits into that spot. But then you're basically taking one of those younger guys and you're saying, well, you're going to be playing in the minors for us at the beginning of the season. Yeah, you it's can't... probably Lars. Lars would be the one that ends up losing out on his spot. I just don't know result. if I... and if Kyle Schwarber is your direction. Oh, and I didn't mention Nolan Gorman as well. Gorman is the other one. But the, the outfield is a concern then because, I mean, who's your fourth outfielder? I mean, Tommy Edmond was fine, but it doesn't make me feel good if one of those guys are injured and I don't like the idea of Kyle Schwarber playing defense for me. And I don't really know if there's another DH outfielder that I'd sit here and be like, unless it's Eddie Rosario. But even that makes me a little nervous. So, frankly, I don't know if you're going after DH. I think you look at it and say, well, Paul DeYoung's our DH. And you hope that he gets back to being the Paul DeYoung that can hit 35 home runs in a season. Yeah, I, I think that's part of what goes into it. But then the other issue is, who do you have more faith in in a full 162 Paul DeYoung or Edmundo Sosa as your starting shortstop. Neither. I love I love Sosa. <laughs> I, I mean, I love him as a defensive guy, but I don't know if his bat will play in your lineup for 162. 162 yeah. at, at what point do we have to say, though, that it's the same thing for Paul DeYoung? I mean, he, he's been a below-average offensive player for three well, years Well, yeah, now. but if you're giving me those two options, I would pick Edmundo Sosa, but I don't yeah. trust either of those. That's fair. No, I, I agree with you there completely. That's why we're even talking about the shortstop market going into the offseason, but... Paul DeYoung now, over the last three seasons, this is no longer a small sample size. This is over 1,200 plate appearances. He's batting 225. And yeah, there's a little bit of pop there, but his slugging percentage is 413. I mean, that's lower than guys like Harrison Bader. 
Um, I I need more out of my shortstop position than that offensively. And I know everybody disagrees with me um, that covers the Cardinals, but I do think Sosa is a better defender at shortstop than Paul DeYoung is. Uh, so th- I, I would trust him more because at least I've got the glove then. But yeah, I mean, the answer is what Alex said. You you probably don't trust either, to be totally honest with you. The other thing that I wanted to ask you guys about is we're kind of talking about the offseason. When you look at the teams that just played in the World Series, if I told you you could rank all of their players that are coming up for uh, for contracts this offseason that are going to be free agents that are available, who would you be most interested in? Now, a guy that probably won't be of interest for the Cardinals is Freddie Freeman. And Buster only said yesterday uh, that he expects Freeman to stay right where he is. I think that they will wind up getting something done because he's the face of the franchise, and that's not going to be what you're going to present to your fans. Yeah, we're, we're going to let that guy go now that we won a championship. I think they'll work out something after they get the CBA signed. That makes sense. I would expect them to do the same thing. If I told you you could have one guy off of the two rosters that we just saw this offseason and take into account what they're probably going to be paid, it's like Carlos Correa, he'd be great, probably going to make close to $300 million. Who would be the guy that you would want to add to this Cardinals roster among the free agents from those teams? I think I'm split between Jack Peterson and Eddie Rosario because I think they fit that perfect fourth left-handed bat. They're not going to be that expensive. They could play the DH, that fourth outfield role. I think I would personally say Eddie Rosario because I think he's a better all-around hitter than Jock Peterson. But if you would prefer to go like the slug baby slug route, which is <laughs> kind of how I would how I like it, but in terms of a bench bet, I like Rosario's contact. I think you could look at Peterson too. I'd understand both of those guys. Oh, I, give, I, I don't do you want, want me to give you the list, by the way? Yeah, please. So here's the list of guys that are going to be free agents this offseason from the Braves. It's Freddie Freeman, who, as we mentioned, probably not an option here in St. Louis. He plays first base. He's great defensively. It wouldn't make a whole lot of sense here. Drew Smiley, the starter for him. Eddie Rosario. Chris Martin, who was a reliever for them. Yeah, Stephen Ricky Vogt. Martin's cousin. Uh, definitely. They're very much related. Uh, Jesse Chavez. Jorge Soler, those are the free agents from the uh, Brave side. And then on Houston, it's Zach Greinke, Justin Verlander, uh, Brooks Raley, Kendall Graveman, who was really good this year for um, the Astros and the Mariners, Marwin Gonzalez, Carlos Correa, and Garcia. So of those options, who would you be most interested Honestly, in? Honestly, there's nobody on the Astros that I'd be interested in, with the exception of Carlos Correa, but we've kind of taken him out of this mm-hmm. one. Eddie Rosario would be number one for me, but I don't know if I'd want Jock Peterson. I think I'd rather have a Jorge Soler. I, I mean, if you're going slug, baby, slug, he is the ultimate slug baby slug type of player and you've talked about it in the past he's not a great defensive player in the outfield you can't play him there (laughs) well look you got away with marcelo zuna in the outfield so if you got to use him for a game maybe you could get away with it but he's the ultimate dh before i'm going to jock peterson who didn't have the best postseason i think i'd be looking at a jorge soler but rosario would be my number one option between those two teams soler is I'm trying to think of a good description of how he's going to be similar to what you have right now with Paul DeYoung, but just with more home runs. I'm fine with To that. me, he's like As the right-handed version of Brandon Moss. Guy that could probably hit 30 to 40 home runs, low average, high slug, and not very DH, big on base. That's fine with me. You'd be surprised at how much he doesn't strike out, though. His strikeout rate actually isn't as bad as you would expect it to be. Um, it's not great, but it's not as bad as you would expect. So, and he walks a ton, and that's part of what the value is of having a guy like him. He walks like 10, 12% of the time. And he's fast too, isn't he? 
got a little bit of speed. So, I mean, he's he, athletic. I wouldn't. I don't know about fast. But, but at least you got somebody on a team that can be a part of the stolen bases if you're going to go yeah, that route. He's okay. ten in his career. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't know. About he's just, steals, been, he's but... just been held back. That's the biggest. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He'll be more aggressive here yeah. in St. Louis. I think I would go with Rosario as well. If you're including what the what the cost is going to be in terms of the the salary next year, I think Eddie Rosario once again would be right up near the top of my list. I mean, the thing with Jack Peterson is I don't know if he would really kind of fit into the quote-unquote cardinal way. He seems a little out there. Peterson? I think yeah. there could be some... I, I think some of that could be good for well, this you team, You don't though. think this team would it, want somebody who said, I'm a bad MFer? No. For some I reason, think they I might. don't think they would. I th- they had I think, him, and they I got think rid of they him. Could, I think they could use it, yeah, but would they want it? I no. don't think so. No, they're not. No See, way. you know what's funny? I actually think they could use a guy like that, and I, I think last year it kind of showed that they could use a guy like that. He's different in, in a lot of ways than Edmundo Sosa, but the swagger that Sosa played was good for this team. Yeah, but the the... His swagger is a lot different than Jock Peterson's swagger. That's fair. His his swag is like Lars Newbar sticking the Jack, tongue out swag. Jock Peterson would wear a bow tie to a or a mow tie to a carnival. Yeah, and Mo is not having that. That's great. No, Mo no, is, is the only one that wears that is a bow tie. A bow thing only. Uh, what about Zach Grinky? I, uh, I don't think he would fit into the. I think way I think one you might be paying too much, and yeah, I don't think he matches a clubhouse. And if I'm, you could get Grinky for one year, eight eight to twelve million dollars, you're, you're out. I'd sign up for that. I'd sign for it, but I I, I think there's going to be issues. I don't see I don't know if Zach Granke's blunt honesty is going to work really well with Yadi or Molina in the clubhouse. Teammates love him. I don't know if the Cardinals are going to go get another starter for like over five million dollars. Yeah, I don't think you're. Why would you? Why would you pay for a guy over five mil when you got the guys that you have, and then all of these young players that eh, Cardinals way we like to get guys opportunities. You guys are right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the route that this is going to go is them trading for Sean Mania, and that's why we don't have to worry yeah, about them getting stuck with this the Paul DeYoung contract. Was, was with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, at 15 minutes or so. But next, let's go around the NFL with one of the more strange trade deadlines that I can remember for two th- two reasons. One of them is guys who weren't traded, and the other one is a guy who might be cut after not being traded yesterday. I'll explain what I mean next on 101 ESPN. They are St. Louis. It's BK and Ferrario, live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. All right, time to go around the NFL. We'll catch up with Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. Let's start with this one, Alex, kind of breaking down the day that was in the NFL yesterday. There were not as many big moves as we expected to see trade deadline-wise. The one that we were all paying attention to was what's going to be the future for Deshaun Watson. Well, it was announced yesterday he was not going to be traded to the Dolphins. They seem to be the only team that he is interested in going to, which is all that matters because he has a complete no-trade clause. Alex, if this was always going to be the end result, why did this get out publicly? If you're the Dolphins, you have completely shattered any confidence that you could have had into a tongue of Iloa. Everybody internally and externally knows he is not your future and that you will eventually trade for Deshaun Watson once everything is cleared up off of the field. And that's a big caveat, of course. Why did this get out? I have no idea. They must really hate Tua. Because of all of this, which makes zero sense because you were trying to compete this season and you lost all hope with that. The part that I don't get either is they like they 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 stood their ground with this. I read an article today that the Dolphins did their due diligence to get 
Deshaun Watson. So it's like not only were the rumors out there, but then you basically knuckled down on it. You doubled down and you said, yeah, we were going to try and acquire him if things worked out in our favor. I wouldn't be surprised to see Tua traded in the offseason. I, I think it has to happen oh, now. Yeah, because you, you can't keep him. You've broken this kid, which it sucks for him. I mean, last year he's already got the insecurity issues with Fitzmagic where it's like they play him and then they sit him, they play him and then they sit him. And then now this, I mean, that is the worst way to handle a young player in football right now. Yeah, I'm with you. They, they've handled this Tua thing very poorly from the very beginning. Uh, I, it is weird how this got out. It, now they got to sell it like when Bielma ripped on his team. I mean, that's basically how they have to do it. I don't I'm, think you can sell it that, that yeah, pretty. Yeah, I know, I know. But I, I think that's what they're going to have to try and do. And I don't know if they can. I'm with you. I thought this was going to be two, last year in Miami anyway. I'm really, I'm really convinced of that now. Yeah, there's no way he can come back next year. No. He has to start elsewhere. And by the way, if I'm another team, I'm giving you nothing for him. Nope. Why would I? I know you got to get rid of him. You have zero leverage. Zero. It's how probably other teams felt about Vladimir Tarasenko in the offseason, Alex. They looked at the Blues and said, ah, I'll call your bluff. You're not going to give him. You're not going to actually go into the season with him. And then the Third Blues are like, said, Watch. no, we will. <laughs> and they found a use for him. The problem for the Dolphins is that you can only start one quarterback. And if they think that they're going to get Deshaun Watson in the offseason, it seems like they probably will because they have the leverage in that one. There's nothing you can do with Tua. You've got to get rid of him. And if I'm another team, I'll give you a day three pick, early day three pick conditional maybe, uh, depending on how Tua plays. And I hope he has success elsewhere because it's totally unfair to him because you're basically telling his teammates publicly that we don't believe in him and undermining any credibility that he previously could have had in that locker room. I can't wait for him to get a fresh start somewhere else. He deserves it. Carolina bound. That would make some Call sense. See yeah, That would make some Probably sense. Probably have success there with Matt Rule's playmaking ability. Yeah. And I, actually a decent quarterback. I don't know. I thought the same with Sam Darnold. No, Sam Darnold's already just been bad. At so, least it's that mono, Tua, man. It'll get you. I would like to see Tua in New Orleans. That's a place that I would like to see him go get an opportunity as well. Sean Payton's such a great coach, man. And speaking of which, let's go into that. Sean Payton has become an underrated coach in the NFL. I have not believed at any point this season in the New Orleans Saints, and it's unfair of me to do so because they just keep winning. Great defense. The offense does just enough. So here's a question for you. If I told you you could have one of these coaches, one of these Sean's for the next 10 years, which one would you take? Sean Payton? Sean McDermott or Sean McVay? Which of those three Sean coaches would you want for the next 10 years? Well, I'd like a guy who can actually win, so Sean McVay's out of this situation. Yeah. Yeah. Have they got a Super Bowl under their belt? They've been to one. More recently than the Saints. How'd they do in that one? Yeah, more recently than the Saints. The Saints Sean McDermott has it. The Saints got blanked over by the Rams and cheating with Sean McVay. So I'd go Sean Payton. The ball was tipped at the line of scrimmage. No, it was an interference. Should have been called. I'd go with Sean Payton here. His ability to work with quarterbacks, his ability to to create a effective offense, and frankly, you got the defense behind it as well from what he's succeeded with this season, where I think a lot of people second-guessed what that defense was going to be. For me, it would be Sean Payton. Man, I'm really torn because I think Sean McVay is the best offensive mind in football right now. I think I might go Sean McDermott right now. And the reason really the reason yeah. I say that is he got Buffalo to the playoffs with Tyrod Taylor. He's part of the <laughs> Sorry, reason Tyrod. that we're yeah. An angel now. Uh, he's part of the reason that uh Josh Allen has really developed in the quarterback that he is. I look at Sean Payton, he was with Drew Brees. If I'm not mistaken, he kind of developed Drew Brees. 
but I don't know if he can do that again. Sean McVay hasn't really developed a quarterback. Quarterback's really mesh into his system. I think I might take Sean McDermott because he's going to be the guy that develops Josh Allen. He's a defensive-minded coach. The defense is usually pretty good in Buffalo. I think I'll take Sean McDonough. No, not McDonough. McDermott here. Sean McDonough. Uh, yeah, the former that? play-by-play guy on Monday Night Football. That's right. I think I would that's go Sean too. Payton. I know this sounds weird, but Sean McVay has been doing this for, what, four years now? But you hate the Pat- or the Saints. I, I know. I-, I like Sean Payton, though. McDermott's been doing it for a few years. I think he's a, an excellent coach. All three of those guys are top five to ten coaches at a minimum in the league right now. Sean Payton's been doing this for more than a decade now, though. And his offense is consistently ranking among the top in the league, despite the fact that Drew Brees was not the same guy at the end of his career. We could all see it. He did it with Taysom Hill. He found ways to have success with Taysom Hill, who can't really throw the football as his starter. He was having success with Jameis Winston prior to him getting hurt. And they just beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with Trevor Simeon starting in that game. I've got to give him the credit that he's, he deserves. Sean Peyton for me out of those three would be the guy that I go with next thing as we go around the NFL big news in the league today there's two pieces we'll get to the first one and then we'll get to the Odell Beckham news Aaron Rodgers officially ruled out this Sunday against the Kansas City Chiefs does this in your opinion makes the Chiefs the clear-cut favorites against the Green Bay Packers on Sunday Oh, you want the sounder? Yeah, I want the sounder. He wasn't optimistic. That's though. pretty optimistic to even bring up the scenario. I think that's an actually I mean, they're favored fair by seven and a half points in Vegas now. It's a fair question, I think. Now, I, well, you're determining this on the sounder. I am the guy behind the board. That's true. Uh, I think. I think it does. I, I think that Green Bay is going to struggle to move the football now, which is hard to believe because I've watched the Chiefs' defense and it's not very good. <laughs> but. I think that defense for the Packers, it's good, but it's still banged up a little bit. I think Mahomes will kind of have a – I think he'll have one of those coming out games, maybe 330 yards, three touchdown passes, something like that. And then I just think that without Aaron Rodgers, the Packers will be unable to move the football. Well, so they got Frank Gore's grandson in the backfield, so Derek, like, things are working pretty well. He's my starting running back in fantasy football this week. You're welcome for taking Adrian Peterson away from you. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to buy into that, and I think the Packers can still pull this one off. I, I just – uh, until I see something in terms of moving the needle with the Kansas City Chiefs defense, and I get it, they got Melvin Ingram. Maybe that helps with the pass rush here. But their secondary has just been awful. And with Jordan Love, I don't know what we're going to see here, but if they have their weapons back, I don't know how Kansas City can stop that with or without Aaron Rodgers. So if I were a Packers coach this week in the meetings with Jordan Love, I would say, hey, you see that number 49? His name's Dan Sorensen. Find him. Don't take care of him. Find him. Don't hurt Dan. And target him all day long. He's terrible. He's one of the worst players in all of football. Oh, Oh, you don't throw it to the guy on defense. If you can can exploit him, you're going to have success all day long as Jordan Love. I still expect the Packers to win this game. I mean, I, I just don't know how I can pick the Chiefs against a quality opponent. And the Packers, despite their deficiency now at quarterback... There is still a quality opponent. The defense has been pretty good so far this year, and they still have a good offensive line, a great running game, and as you mentioned, really good weapons if Devontae Adams is going to be able to come back. So I still expect the Packers to win this game despite it being at home and despite the Packers being without Aaron Rodgers. I, I mean, just don't view them as a quality opponent anymore because they lost Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, but Aaron losing J- your top three wideouts is a little different than losing Aaron Rodgers. Absolutely. But Aaron Jones is, I, I mean, he's a step below Derrick Henry right now for how he's performing. And we all know how we feel about Derrick Henry. I think you take Aaron Rodgers out of this, you still have to worry about those weapons. And last thing here, this is the other big news today. 
Odell Beckham Jr. has been told to stay home from the Cleveland Browns. They said, you know what? You're not needed here anymore. Your services, not wanted. Uh, your dad was on Instagram with an 11 and a half minute video breaking down why Never the quarterback well. is the problem. We don't need you coming around the facilities any longer. So Odell Beckham has been told, basically, you're not a part of the team for the remainder of the season. The Browns are talking with his agent about a potential financial settlement where he could become a free agent, potentially. Is it over for Odell Beckham? Is he just done as being a top like 30 receiver in the league now? I think he's done being viewed as a top receiver in the league. I don't think he's done overall. Honestly, I think if he goes to a quarterback in a system that just primarily throws the football... I think Odell Beckham Jr. can resurface in terms of a top wide receiver. I don't think he'll ever be what he was in his first few seasons in the NFL, but I don't see it happening. But you got to find yourself a Tampa Bay Buccaneers situation. You got to find yourself a situation. You need a number two quarter, a number two receiver, a quarterback who loves to throw the football, and somebody to take some pressure off of their number one guy. I think he has success wherever he goes if he goes to the right system. Yeah, I don't think he's a top thirty guy anymore, but I think he's a nice complimentary piece, kind of like an Antonio Brown has become. That's how I view him, and I'm with you, Alex. I think you go to a team that's really good that has probably a top wide receiver or two top wide receivers, and you go join them and just become that complimentary piece that can maybe. Like- Get get more opportunities because they're doubling your uh, like, counterpart. Put him in Dallas. Like, what do you think he does in Dallas with that system? I think they've got too many mouths to feed. Yeah, but if you have your slot guy in Amari Cooper and you have your two deep threats with C.D. Lamb and then OBJ, I, I mean, that's a dangerous offense. They, they've got what's-his-face coming back this week, though. Gallup. Um, Gallup, yeah. yeah. I forgot about that. So I, I don't know. I think they would have maybe one too many. I feel like the Titans could be a spot that would make some sense for him now that they've lost Derrick Henry. They're, they're going to have to throw in the ball more. Yeah. The Raiders with the Henry Ruggs news maybe would be a good option for him. I actually think the Chiefs might be an interesting landing spot for him. I think it could totally ruin their season, but it's already derailed at this point. Might as well try it. The Packers would be interesting. They could use one more weapon outside of Devontae Adams, and they just lost their tight end last week for the rest of the season. Circus, if you put him on that stuff right now. And then the only other place, I don't think this one would make a ton of sense, but the Saints really need receivers right now because it was just announced today Michael Thomas is out for the rest of the season. The problem is, I think that would have made a lot more sense if Jameis was still their Another quarterback. One. I don't think he's going to want to go there with Trevor Simeon. Another one I think that could make sense is Arizona. Or I was thinking Buffalo, too. Buffalo would be an interesting Buffalo one. Buffalo would be a good one. You, you don't have to just rely solely on Cole Beasley to be the number two guy. Cole Beasley can go about his business. He'd take pressure off of Stephon Diggs. Josh Allen loves to throw the football. I think the Raiders are the one that pops out to me that makes the most sense, though. Yeah. Because he, but I think you're making him a one there, right? Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know how he's going to do that I'm with you, but they throw the ball a lot. I mean, he'll be number two in terms of the pass catching options because Darren Waller is their number yeah. one guy, but he's their number one receiver for sure. I, I think it would make sense for him, maybe more so than it does for them, but they've got to have somebody to replace what Henry Ruggs was giving them. All right, with Alex Ferrario, Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll cross things over with the fast lane in 10 minutes, but the voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber, joining us next. Giving you the picture, the real big St. Louis sports picture. It's BK and Ferrario, live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. Back 
in action tonight. Blues versus Kings pregame coverage with Alex coming up at 8 o'clock. The puck drop with Chris Kerber and Joey Vitale at 9. And Chris Kerber joins us now via the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line, the voice of the Blues, of course. Kerbs, we always appreciate the time, man. How you doing today? Hanging out okay, BK. How are you? Uh, doing all right. So it sounds like the Blues could be getting back Ryan O'Reilly and Oscar Sundquist at some point on this road trip or certainly within the next couple of weeks. Uh, Curbs, what do you expect from Sonny in particular whenever he's able to return to uh, to the ice? Uh, honestly, I'm, I'm not going to say much at the beginning. Let's just get him in there, take some hits, see how his body reacts to it. two major surgeries. To have to recover from at the same time is a lot. So, you know, for me, I think just getting him in there, getting him through a game at about 12 to 15, you know, minutes in that game and getting him through healthy and see how the body feels is the first big success. Uh, you you got to think, though, and, and the way these teams handle this stuff, BK, is when a player, well, they're, they're not putting the player back in until they're ready to go, at least not at this point in time of the season. You might see something sooner if you're in the playoffs, but there's, there's really no point to rush him. Uh, I think they probably have a date in their mind that, that they're thinking of. I don't know what that date is. Uh, is there a chance it could be on this road trip? I, 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 I guess when you read between the, the lines, it looks like it's possible. You know, but, but to me, I don't expect that I see him out there you know, in that top penalty killing unit throwing his body all over the place right off the hop. And, and if that happens, it's a bonus. But when they get him back, they're getting back one of the uh, best all-around players on this team. So uh, I, it, it'll be a, a welcome sight either way. Curbs, we talked about this earlier in the show. If you had a question about this team, what would it be in the early portion of the season? Because they're top in goals scored, they're tops in goals allowed, they're top three or top two in both special teams units. This team doesn't seem to have a whole lot of questions surrounding it. I think my question it, it, right now, Alex, is probably the same one that it was going into the season, and that's chemistry. Uh, I like what we've seen. I like the feel. I like when you're around this team, the attitude of this team. It, it's all good. You know, we've seen key players already miss games because of COVID primarily. We've seen other guys step in. I think the schedule is such that you're playing teams that despite those guys being out, you've got a little bit of leeway in terms of how to you know, how to play without them. That, that Colorado game maybe being the exception, the first game that Ryan O'Reilly missed. But, but for me, as the season really gets going in it, and, and as we get to you know, 15, 20 games, and if this team is healthy, the chemistry question for me is, do guys, are, are guys really willing to accept their role for the greater good of the team? And, and I look at it now, you know, like tonight's lineup, if you have a third line that consists of Saad, Bozak, and Butchnevich, okay? You know, are, are Saad and Butchnevich, you know, do they accept the quote-unquote third-line role if the Thomas Tarasenko Barbashev line continues to stay on fire? Those kind of things. How Are guys okay with less minutes in some games because of the flow of the game than, than more minutes in others? And, and, if, and if noses don't get bent out of shape because of that, when you've got a deep team like this, when you've got a bit of a veteran team like this, then you, I, I don't think anything stops this team, to be honest with you, when they're healthy. So to me, that's that's the storyline I'm going to keep an eye on here for a little while. Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, joining us here on 101 ESPN Blues versus Kings tonight. Pre-game coverage at 8 o'clock. Kerbs, I was uh, interested in kind of looking into, okay, what are some of the concerns about the Blues? Because when I watch right now, I, I don't see a whole lot. I mean, Alex gave you the numbers. They're top five in basically every statistical category in terms of the traditional numbers. There are some of the advanced numbers that uh, aren't quite as favorable for the Blues, and I'd love to get your thoughts on these. Uh, they 
They've actually been outshot so far on the season, 187 to 195. If you're looking at the high danger chances, their opponents have 16 more on the year than the Blues do. And there's an expected goal stat as well that's available uh, for the public. And the Blues have basically been dead even on that. They've scored five more goals than expected, and they've allowed three fewer. So their goaltending's been very good, and they've taken advantage of their opportunities. It's not a shot against them. It's just how it's gone so far. Does any of that leave you any sort of concern or uh, do you think the Blues have just taken advantage of their opportunities? How do you feel about some of those numbers? Well, the expected goal uh, category stat is one I've never really put any kind of real stock into because it's all kind of based on it, it. It's all, for lack of a better way, based on certain projections. Right. So I don't yeah, based on I, the I quality of your shots. Yeah, I don't I, I don't put I don't put a whole lot into there because. So so much of this ends up being situational. So, for example, you've played two games against the L.A. Kings. The L.A. Kings are taking a lot of shots on net. They've got a philosophy where they get the puck over the line, you get it to the net. You've played two games against Colorado. All right, so two games against L, two games against Colorado. If you look at how Colorado plays, a lot of times they get the puck out of the zone. They want to dump it on net, get a stoppage in play, right? And and then get a line matchup where they can get, you know, McDavid and, and Ranton and Landeskog out you know, against some favorable uh, opponents in that sense. So to me, that's part of the shots on goal thing. So I'm not looking in that too much. Plus, I also think in the early part of the season, you're still sorting some things out defensively. You're still sorting some system stuff out, you know, so that, that, that one, you know, I don't look at too much concern in that now. And in the end, you may have a team where the characteristic is you do give up a lot of shots on goal, but if you're, if you're forcing a lot of those from the outside, you're, you're, you're doing okay there. I think if there's one aspect of the game that I, I, I mean, and in talking to the coaches about this a little bit, you know, that, that they want to see more of it's, it's even better play inside, get that puck over the blue line and get it into some more of those high danger areas inside the faceoff circles from the top of the circles down. Like if you created a home plate, right. And you go from the top of the circle to the dot to the goalpost on either side, and then connect at the top of the circles, you create like a home plate look. Stuff in there is where they want to see. And in the last few games, I don't think they've seen enough inside that area. So for me, if, if, you, if they start to see more scoring chances inside that high danger area, you're getting more of what the coaching staff wants to see. So, and I think more to, you know, to your point too, I think they've done a really good job of taking advantage of, of opponents, schedules, um, special teams opportunities, and, and, and that's all led to what's been a very good, positive start. And, and you're going to build. I mean, we're only, what, we're only seven games into this thing. So there are still team foundations to be built as this season early part continues to go on. Final question for Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues. Kerbs, I did want to ask you about Scott Perunovic, who's had a, a great start to the season down in the AHL. Two goals so far, eight assists, ten points in his first six games. He's also a plus two if you uh, look at the plus minus. Do you think there's anything the Blues specifically are looking for from him down in the AHL before they decide to bring him up? Or is this just a matter of, hey, he hasn't played organized hockey in about a year or so. Uh, let's get him some opportunities down there. And then if we need him later on, we will. Is there is there something that you know that they're looking for from him while he's down in the AHL? Yeah, Scott Perunovich had a, had a real solid camp. He's down in the AHL because, as you said, he, he didn't play much over the last 12 months, if at all. And, uh, and in, in that sense, in that sense, Brandon, I, I just wanted to get him some playing time. So what they're looking for him down there is solid playing time. They want to see him getting as much penalty kill minutes as they can. They want to see him getting as much power play minutes as they can. They want to see him 
play and dominate as he has been doing five on five. Use his skating, use his speed, put some of that confidence back in there. It's a challenging league for a defenseman. And even and guys will tell you that sometimes it's even more challenging than the National Hockey League. And the reason is is it gets to be a lot more scrambly in front of your net. You know, the systems aren't quite as clean. You know, sometimes the plays aren't clean. You'll have more turnovers. And so you find yourselves in situations down there that can be far more educational than up here where sometimes the play, albeit quicker, is cleaner. And so there's, there's that education standpoint. So the fact that, as well, that he played college hockey, then had the injuries and, and, and really didn't play for a year, now you're playing a pro schedule is another part of his education too. Put all that together. I know they're real happy. He was the player of the week down there again. So it's a, uh, it's a really good situation to have. And look, if they didn't have a Jake Wallman, Ready to go? Scott Perunovich is probably in the National Hockey League. So it, it's a protecting your asset number situation that gives them the ability to let some guys groom in the American Hockey League. And, and other th- Nashville. Nashville's always been really good at developing defensemen. All their top prospects spent time in the American Hockey League. It, it's a good step for him to take, and I think they like the fact that he's playing in every situation. It's going to be fun to watch him whenever he does make it up to the NHL. Cars, we're looking forward to the call tonight. Blues versus Kings. Pre-game with Alex coming up at 8. Puck drop at 9. Always appreciate it. We'll talk with you again next week, my man. All right, guys. Have a great weekend. You too. That's Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues here on 101 ESPN. We'll cross things over with the fast lane coming up next. Time now for the crossover on 101 ESPN. And we got Anthony Stolzer in studio. If you miss anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, the free 101 ESPN app. Stoltz, what's coming up today on the Fast Lane, man? Well, we got to talk about the Aaron Rodgers situation. Ooh, this is buddy. this is crazy. So your Chiefs catch a break, certainly with Rodgers being out. So we'll get into that. 13-4. It's going to be great. How about that? Chiefs uh, aren't going to lose anymore. Blues starting the road trip. We'll dive into that. Road trip importance. Bennington's role throughout it all. And uh, Braves certainly pushed all the right buttons in winning the World Series. We'll draw some comparisons to the Cardinals. Oh, nice. Looking forward to that. That is coming up from 2 to 6. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 right here on 101 ESPN.